Hey everybody, welcome. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Lore Lesson Compilation for Volume 2 of the Lore Seekers Podcast. And we couldn't be more thankful for you to hang out with us through the entire volume, all 14 episodes that we had. We hope that you enjoy this as well. We've compiled all, uh, it's at least five hours of Lore Lessons, all compiled just for you. Uh, Before you begin, if you are looking for a specific piece of lore that you want to listen to, uh, you can check in the download or the episode notes in your download, or also you can go to the loreseekerspodcast.com website, and on the episode page there, we'll have everything listed out for you, top to bottom. So uh, we hope you enjoy it. Cash and I, again, just want to thank you so much for your continued support, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. Are you ready to talk about necromancy? Oh, dude, I'm so ready. Enlighten me. So we will be covering, at random times, the different schools of magic. Ooh. So in Lore Lesson 19, this is our 19th Lore Lesson, mm-hmm. we wanted to hit necromancy. And the reason being is because it, it's getting talked about a lot. There's Maybe it's because we're like looking for more information on it and stuff. Because Jibs and I, as we talked about, are very big proponents of a true necromancer class. Now, whatever yes. your feelings are on the subject, if you're for it, awesome. If you're not, I don't care. We're going to talk about it anyway because <laughs> we're <laughs> we're kind of fanboys for it. And, you know, so there are some people yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, it wouldn't be lore-centric. And it'd be too much like the Sork. And so, yeah, we get all that stuff. But knowing Zaz and how creative they are, how creative they are, there's no doubt in my mind that they could pull this off. Oh, it's and it would be we've fantastic. never heard anything of it other than just a speculation of our own wants and slash needs. Um, so don't you know think that we know anything because we don't. Uh, it just sounds really cool though. So let's talk about what it is, and you definitely run into it all over the place in every single Elder Scrolls game. Well. Mages across Tamriel have attempted to uncover the secrets of something called the Animus. Now, the Animus is nothing more than a soul in some form or another. And the mystery behind this force is not currently known. And as a matter of fact, it's really thought to be unknowable as it's said to be, it's rumored to transcend the limits of of the living. So it's no different than the world we live in today where... Nobody truly knows what happens to one's soul when you die and you depart the earth. Well, in Tamriel, it's that's still true, but mages don't necessarily need to know the secrets of the afterlife in order to tap into the energy of the afterlife, if that makes sense. Hmm. So like students of, say, the Conjuration School of Magic, they can harvest what's known as the white souls of lesser creatures like animals for instance or goblins or something like that but necromancy as an arcane art actually delves into the realm of harvesting the black souls of mortal beings so you may want to wash yourself off with bleach after i talk about this because it's really freaking evil but it's super (laughs) awesome (laughs) okay so um Necromancy is kind of known as an immoral school. The dark arts is what it's known as. And it involves 
the actual manipulations of the souls of the or the souls or the corpses of the dead. Mm-hmm. So some consider necromancy to be a subset of the school of conjuration as it requires summoning spirits. But like we just talked about white versus black, you're actually in the dark arts. You're actually tapping into the powers of oblivion. Mm-hmm. So what this involves is binding the spirit to a vessel in a physical form in which the necromancer has prepared ahead of time. Don't worry. Ooh. I will explain. It goes really deep i was were I really you, liked like unexpected unexpectedly uh, surprised um i was really surprised and happy about the information that's out there on the details of how this is performed oh. and i'm also glad that i researched it during the day <laughs> because nightmares right okay most tamrielic cultures believe that necromancy contradicts the natural process of life and death and it violates the sanctity of the spirit okay so most cultures consider necromancy immoral and illegal Hmm. now this doesn't mean that it's deterred anybody from performing the practice uh, particularly for use in times of war and conflict so most necromancers utilize a very very heavy daedric influence in their in their necromancy most notably like um that from the daedric prince of molag ball he is also known as the father of vampires he's very very well pronounced in the game that we play um and you all know that vampires are basically undead beings who have a very heightened affinity for the practice of raising the dead mm-hmm. so there's no doubt that necromancy has a direct tie to the Daedric Prince Molak Ball. Right. So a lot of magical circles have widely debated this. Now there's advocates of necromancy and then there are opponents of necromancy. So the advocates of necromancy see it as a necessary evil to combat the evil practitioners of the very same discipline, which I thought was very interesting. I'm going to practice necromancy in order to deter you from practicing necromancy. I'm like, that is freaking blasphemy. If there is ever blasphemy. Right. Made me laugh. I was like, okay, whatever. I don't understand how that works, but all right. Yeah. On the other hand, there's the opponents of necromancy and they see it as we talked about before as a a pure violation of, of caution and ethics. And therefore they believe it should be reserved only for the most trusted and wise mages and only for the use of combating the dark practice by lesser experienced, dumber mages, basically. Like, hey, dumb dumb head, you shall not because you suck at it, <laughs> and you're gonna you're gonna freaking overrun us. All right. Um, so they believe the proponents believe that studying necromancy is just too or is too extreme to be utilized, and it's unwise because it virtually guarantees the eventual destruction of the practitioner. And the reason well, we will get to. But necromancy by nature draws the attention of magic practitioners of all different types of paths. And it's usually the ones with the sinister pursuit of power. Most novice necromancers require a fresh corpse. This is where we get into details. Most of the beginners require a fresh corpse, usually within about three days of death. Whereas masters of necromancy can reanimate subjects that have been dead for a long, long time. 
the best mage, mages out there can revive entire armies of the undead as long as they have the resources. And when I mean resources, you need a bunch of freaking dead bodies in order to do it. Because huh. they got to do it, they got to do it, you know, one at a time, or I don't know, batch summoning, or however they do it. But mm-hmm. so for the untested mage, attempting to reanimate a dead corpse may lead to a break in the master minion relationship, causing the undead minion to turn on its summoner. Hmm. For this reason, crypts and dungeons across Tamriel have been sealed off. So. Uh, the reason they've been sealed off is just to contain the hordes of the undead that have been raised within their walls, waiting for an unsuspecting adventurer such as you or me. So many necromancers claim to have some sort of scientific basis for their experimentation within the dead or experimentation with the dead, while others just want the raw power. Some dabble in the practice just to resurrect a, a loved one, but true resurrection in its truest form has really never been possible. So let's talk a little bit about the resurrection of minions. The resurrection of a personal minion has been a common practice of necromancers and the ability of the servant to follow its summoner's directions is really directly related to the necromantic servant's intelligence in life. So basically all that means is if you're trying to resurrect a corpse that was a real dumbass in life. He's probably <laughs> going to be even dumber when you resurrect him to be your minion. Right? Yeah. Yeah. True dad. So if you, you know, say you have some sort of scholar or, you know, some type of a very smart politician and then that guy kicks the bucket and you try and resurrect him to be your minion you're probably going to have a little better chance of him following your directions and not wanting to turn around and eat your face. Oh, okay. Is, I'm kind of, I'm kind of taking it. So, so what you're saying is they should resurrect me and totally avoid you. Oh my God. You seriously said that. <laughs> I mean, cause sometimes like some stupid crap comes out of your mouth. And I think that was one of those times, but yeah, I mean, oh. if that's what makes you sleep better at night, then yeah, whatever. <laughs> So now skeletons seem to be a very popular target for necromancers because you don't have to do a ton to prepare them, but you still have to do some. So skeletons are are liked because they're very, they're fast in battle. I mean, they have very low wind resistance, obviously, but the problem is, is they're incredibly fragile and they can only be resurrected once before being destroyed for good. And I kind of like that that's was that that's in the lore because we all know it's pretty dang easy to kill a skeleton. You ever tried to hit a skeleton from like 500 yards away with your bow in Skyrim? Yeah, that's like one of the proudest moments of your life when you can actually do it. Yeah, but when you do, even from that distance, they just shatter. Just right. boom. Just explode. Gone. One shot. <laughs> so, and we all know that, you know, skeletons as a resurrected being is done so because of necromancy. So it kind of all ties together when you read the lore stuff. It's like, man, that's all ties together. And like every game I've ever played, and there's always skeletons and they're easy to kill. And I love it. Right. So other targets of necromancy, such as like a decaying corpse can be raised as a zombie minion, but there must be preparation taken in order to preserve the stability of the vessel. Here's where the details come in. 
mummification of the corpse is often used uh-huh. or fastening of leather straps in joint areas in order to reinforce unliving flesh. Oh. So you have to prepare your stuff. And that's what they're talking about when they say necromancers have to take the time to prepare the vessel before bringing it up. Because say you have a skeleton. Nothing's mm-hmm. holding that thing together. So you reanimate it and bring it back to life and it just falls apart. Uh, see what I mean? I see. I got Kind of simple, kind of complicated. Hmm. And then... Here's a very important little fun fact, Jibs. Hmm. Cryomancers, which you and I just ran into. Dude, I didn't know they existed. In a certain mansion, which we are going to get to later. Yes. But you and I ran into cryomancers in Reaper's March. So they have been known to conjure frost around a human corpse and then imbue the spirit into the frost itself. Really smart, actually. Uh, yeah, super cool because that also tied into more lore. And I was like, ah, we just ran into that. It's super cool. Come on out. Have a yep. beer. It's Listen really to the cool. New episode. You're going to like it. Right. Okay, now, now for the actual fun fact. Liches, or undead necromancers, terrifying in itself, become so by placing their soul into a phylactery such as a jar or chest. The only way to truly destroy a lich is to destroy the phylactery itself, or the lich is free to resurrect at will. I have run plenty of quests where you have to, you kill the lich and you have to kill the phylactery. I'm like, okay, lore, I dig it. Hmm. So most liches were once very powerful and intelligent necromancers in life, and then in death, they become an undead necromancer, and many times they can control an undead army within a tomb of some sort. How many yeah. of those have we been in in Dude, general? Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, I I have somewhat of a fascination with the liches. I just think they're so, A, gnarly, and, you know, they got the whole look, and they're scary, but on top of that, they are usually, I mean, especially if it's in, like, a dungeon, there are bosses. I mean, they're it's always, like, a formidable opponent, so I, I dig it. Yeah. Yep. They're fun to kill. Yeah. Okay, so in previous lore lessons, you remember that the Sigic Order was among the first magical circles to outlaw the practice of necromancy. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, it's dangerous, it's, it, you know, it's heretical. Cool. You may also remember that the origin story of Vanis Galarian and his quest to stop his good buddy and colleague, Metamarco, from continuing his pursuit of becoming a powerful necromancer... Galarian failed, and then he later ended up forming the Major's Guild, which also banned the practice of necromancy. Little bit more into Metamarco's um, foray into necromancy. So as we know today, the dark practice is said to have begun with Metamarco. And that's the dark practice itself. It's his, his form of necromancy. So he was also known as the King of Worms. Mm-hmm. Metamarco was a very successful as an as a necromancer, and although he was deterred by mortal beings, he was never truly afraid of them. The only thing that Manamarco has been known to be afraid of is the wrath of Arke. So Arke, whose blessings served to inhibit and thwart necromantic attempts, offered something called Arke's Law. Arke's Law, when applied correctly, would give a corpse impenetrable protections against being reanimated 
So, which basically means if this ritual is performed correctly upon this being's death, you cannot reanimate the corpse. So Manamarco, knowing this, directed his followers to defy RK at every single turn in hopes of destroying his influence in Tamriel altogether. wonder how that worked out for him. <laughs> not no very spoilers, well. But, no yeah. spoilers, but not very well. Unless you suck as a player. Then it might have gone up. <laughs> Unless you've already unsubbed out of rage. <laughs> right. Okay, so regions of necromantic affluency. There are some different... I never would have considered this, but there's areas of Tamriel where necromancy is easier or harder to, to do. Um, they all have their share of necromantic influence, but because of like environmental and political impacts on the practice, um, I went and picked some of the best ones to talk about. The first one is Cyrodiil with two eyes. <laughs> so at certain times in history, the region of Cyrodiil itself held some sort of loose legality in the practice of necromancy. The Empire, slimy bastards, they've been known to actually hire... Did I say that out loud? Sorry. Some, uh, sometimes stuff just comes out. So the Empire itself has been known at times to actually hire necromancers to scientifically pursue the arts, to learn more about them, even providing corpses of traitors and criminals for them to study. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's some sinister I crap. Didn't, right? I, dude, I dig that. That's, wow. Okay. That's terrible. All right. <laughs> all right. So all right. during the period of ESO in the Second Era, the Mages Guild clearly outlawed necromancy, um, and they were banished from the Imperial City in order for the Order of the Black Worm to be allowed to practice. I was like, okay. Mm. It's kind of neat. Mm -hmm. Marco, you bastard. So during the Marithic era, the Aliens, yes, yes, we will talk about the Aliens. Give us some time. Aliens are really the long-lost elves of Cyrodiil, but during the Marithic era, they were known to have a very strong affinity for necromancy, and they utilized undead armies in protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. So the practice was thought to be as a result of agreements made with Daedric princes like Molag Bal, but um, particularly infamous for directing hordes of uh, undone, or undead creatures at his enemies. So that's still kind of speculation whether that uh, that's how the aliens did it, but they were said to have ties with Molag Bal. Hmm. This one was pretty interesting. Black Marsh. So Black Marsh, as we know, very, very harsh environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that corpses decay rather quickly in the Black Marsh because it's See hot and sticky. Humid. Mm -hmm. So it makes it makes necromancy difficult down there. But the slowed in particular have been known to practice the dark arts in the region. Of course. Near they the have. coastlines. Yes. Because slowed. Yeah, and yep. if I didn't hate slowed before, after being in cloud rest for quite a, a bit now, yeah, I really hate the slowed. Yeah, I mean, gnarly. Burn them with fire. Am I right? Yeah, whatever you get, whatever it takes. This one was interesting. Elsewhere, the home of the Khajiit. Now, this land is known to be quite fruitful for necromancers. Why? Well, because first of all, 
that Khajiit could give a crap less about uncovered grave sites. And apparently, <laughs> they've even been known to sell corpses in the port city of Sanchal. <laughs> of course they have. I know. Of like, course they hmm, have. What are you looking for? This one has wares. This one stinks. Take it off my hands. I'll give it to you cheap. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I kind of laughed at that. And then also the arid climates and parts of the region help with the preservation of the corpses and the way that corpses are buried in elsewhere under stones in Kajiti culture makes procuring vessels for necromancy kind of easy. So elsewhere, very good for necromancy. Hammerfell. This one was pretty cool. So the Red Guards, not only are they averse to any forms of magic, but necromancy in particular. And the reason being is because they have a very strong connection to their fallen kin. So anybody that messes with the corpses of the dead really pisses off the red guards. And I don't know about you. We've already talked about them in a lore lesson. I would not want to face a pissed off red guard. Have you actually played the uh, red guard or the Alakir desert storyline yet? No, sir. I have not. You need to go play it after doing this. Because necromancy plays an integral part of that storyline. And you are right. They don't just hate it. They furiously, passionately hate it. It is a complete disservice to their fallen kin. And just the idea of it just infuriates them beyond compare. Let me ask you this. Does it have anything to do with a exiled Redguard tribe called Shaba? Maybe, maybe not. No comment. Yes. Wink. So next part, next part of this of necromancy in Hammerfell is the Ashaba. They are a nomadic sect dedicated mm-hmm. to the vanquishing of any and all undead, mm-hmm. and they spend a very nomadic lifestyle as exiles from t- traditional Red Guard society. Mm-hmm. By purif- they just travel around purifying mausoleums and destroying any undead they encounter. Yeah. When you are in Ashaba, you are looked at differently in Red Guard society. It is very, um, it's like a noble sacrifice, if you will, I guess, in a way. That's a great um, way to put it. In the, in the eyes of the Red Guard. It's, I tell you what, seriously, I'm going to have to go play that Alakir Desert line again because that's getting me all jazzed up. But yeah, good, good stuff. I want to get two jazz. We're not done yet. Okay. Okay, uh, so here's a little fun fact for you. Orcish corpses are particularly sought after by necromancers for their durable frames, tough skin, and strong bones. I laughed. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed at this part, too. Of course they are. In the third era, a group of necromancers actually tried to procure a trade deal for orcish corpses with Orsinium. There is no further information on what became of the potential buyers. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. I know, oh, like, man. that's got to be a good story. It's like, mm-hmm. no, Grognak not sell you any orc corpses, me eat you. <laughs> and that's where the story ended, because that's where they ended. <laughs> yep. Stringy. Okay, Valenwood. This one, I don't know, I like them all, so whatever, that's why I picked them. Okay, Valenwood. Despite their cannibalistic tendencies in strict accordance with the Green Pact, which we also covered on a previous lore lesson, the Bosmer of Valenwood are known to have a fanatical intolerance for necromancy. Valenwood 
is typically a very difficult place to practice necromancy due to the lack of available corpses. Huh. I'm waiting for your laughter. <laughs> Was that good? Didn't anybody get that? The green pact? Or cannibals? <gasps> oh, oh yeah. Not very many available corpses. Yeah. <laughs> I get it now. I'm sorry. Lulled. It took me a minute. I That's, yes. Yeah. So oh, crap. a little That's bit funny. more about the aliens, um, the aliens in Valenwood. History holds that they that the ones who lived in Valenwood in times past actually established the city of Hectahame over a site of immense power. The heart of Valenwood is what it was called. So an unknown necromancer, why he's unknown, I don't know, ended up distorting the power found at Hectahame and raised an entire undead horde so powerful that the city was sealed off just to contain the evil. What? This area is available to explore in the Elder Scrolls Online. Ooh, I'm going to go check it out. Yes, I looked it up. I was like, ooh, I'm going to have to go there and do that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of cool. I think it's in green shade. So, you know. I feel like I've ran by that. I've just never investigated. I'm going to have to go check it out again. Yeah. So, anyway, that uh, that ends the lore lesson on necromancy. And like I was saying before, regardless of your personal take on it, it's a really cool topic of discussion and there there are people talking about it and there's, you know, for and against actually getting the necromancer class uh, in the game because they do have, they have done some pretty innovative things and there are like, you know, there's soul leeching stuff in a lot of the different classes and a lot of the different skill lines for the classes. So they've really done a good job of intermixing some of these disciplines into the classes. Um, you know, there's soul magic and stuff that, that every character gets. So I don't know if they would ever put in a true necromancer class. Please. But it sure would be freaking cool. There's so many things you could do. I'll be honest. Yeah. I, I didn't know, before this lore lesson, I didn't know there was so much work that was involved and so much more depth to a necromancer than just, oh, yeah, yeah, they work with the dead. Yeah. Remember, like, they work with Wormwood and all those staffs and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, there's there's a... There is a definitely a dedication there that I didn't realize existed. And I really feel yeah. like, I'm going to say it again, they could totally do something with that in Elder Scrolls Online. And it definitely needs to happen. Yes, they could. Well, time will tell, my friend. Mm, that's true. Well, well done. Well done, my friend. First time back in a couple of weeks. Such a lazy clap. You didn't really is, like it, did you? This is Happy Gilmore golf clap right here. Whatever. Lore lesson 20. Let's talk about the Imperials. It's been so long. Everybody's wanted to talk about the Imperials. Well, we're finally in a place that's lore relevant for us to talk about the stinking Imperials. Mm -hmm. Actually, they're quite interesting. But here we go. So they are also, the Imperials, our friends, maybe not are also known as the Syro-Nordics, or the Cyrodiilics, which sounds like an 80s uh, rock band. But <laughs> they are quite refined. Not as refined as the Altmer. But they are very refined, very educated natives of the province of Cyrodiil. Imperial culture centers around commerce, the training of their civilian armies, and their respect for the laws of the land. Let's dive in. Really interesting lore lesson, but I did not feel the overwhelming urge to want to go make an Imperial. 
when we were done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. might. I just didn't. So let's talk about some physical traits. So Imperials are less physically impressive than some of the other races of Tamriel. I don't mean they're out of shape. I just mean that they are more effective as like traders and diplomats, although they have a very strict dedication to training, particularly with light infantry, and that has allowed them to become the force of the empire that they are. And, um, you know, they've become a very strong force to be reckoned with within the greater struggle of Tamriel. They have incredible martial influence to pretty much all the other nations, and they have, in a lot of ways, forged peace and prosperity through the empire that they that they rule, that they touch. Um, so this overwhelmingly civilized culture of Imperials is really highlighted by their cosmopolitanism. What is that? Well, it's kind of the ideology that all humans belong to one single community based on a shared morality. So all this time we kind of bag on them a little bit, but you know what? They, In the end, they really did have a big influence for good reason. Mm-hmm. So this shared morality. Um, they've become very, very skilled in commerce and diplomacy. And this most likely manifested due to Cyrodiil's geographical location. They're kind of right in the middle of everything. They're surrounded by almost all varying cultures of Tamriel. So they really became experts at like building relationships and kind of maintaining order. Right. And people kind of followed suit. Imperial culture and progressivism is driven by their mastery of mercantilism, which is basically making and selling stuff. They have an incredible river network in Cyrodiil, and that allowed for the effective exportation of goods, including like textiles. They were known for having very, very colorful fabrics that they exported. Moon sugar, I lolled. Rice and armor <laughs> are some of their major exports. But they used that, that river system to get those things to areas that you know they could sell them. Right. So Western Colovia is kind of the western part of the western areas of Cyrodiil. And there were also Imperials there too. But the Colovians, which we have run into in Reaper's March, have really chosen to follow a more of a basic lifestyle in accordance with their uh, Nordic ancestry. So they, a lot of them have become like mercenaries and pirates. Mm-hmm. There's a really good quest line actually right outside of our um, where our tavern is located in Northern Re- Reaper's March. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the town of Arenthia. There's a really good quest line up there where you get to go liberate the town of Arenthia from Colobian uh, influence. Kind of cool. There's a lot of history there. That's awesome. Speaking of history, during the Merithic era, the Imperial race was born. This is like their, like the dead-on baseline where did they come from well i'm about to tell you in the merithic era the imperial race was born of the original nibbanese tribesmen what is that well it's the race of men from nibbane they were also comprised of needs the race of men indigenous to cyrodiil hammerfell skyrim and morrowind and the syro nords which were the original nords to settle in the province of cyrodiil so all three of those, the Nibbanese, the Needs, 
and the Cyronords came together to make the Imperial race, basically. And how did that happen? Well, in the first era, actually it was the first era, year 242 to be exact, these three races were subjugated by the Aldmer, sorry, and the Aliens. Very interesting. Um, and they basically led a massive rebellion against the Aldmer and the Aliens, uh, led by the guidance of St. Alessia, which is a name that we've all heard in Elder Scrolls Online. So let's talk a little bit about St. Alessia. Mm -hmm. She's also known as Queen Alessia. And she led this rebellion of men, of the first Imperials, against the tyrannical Aldmer and the Aliens, freeing all of Cyrodiil from slavery and thus forming the first Cyrodiilic Empire. Those are your first Imperials right there. Huh. Here's a little fun. Yeah, kind of interesting, huh? Yeah. I got a lot of fun facts on this one. It's, it was really kind of a neat lesson to, uh, to research and write. So the fun fact, the first one. Through her rebellion and the establishment of the first Cyrodiilic Empire, Queen Alessia became the empire's first empress, and she continued her influence by establishing a new religion that eventually spread to the entirety of Tamriel through imperial rule. I'm going to repeat that. The empress, Queen Alessia, established a new religion that eventually spread to the entirety of Tamriel through imperial rule. Kind huh. of guess what it is. A fusion of Nordic and Aldmeri pantheons, she created the religion of the eight divines. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah, that's huge. Big history. Big, big history. So yeah. I was like, whoa, that has to be a fun fact. So eventually, the Alessian Empire would spread their influence into the other provinces of Tamriel, but the Colovian West, remember those renegades from the West, would eventually break away and cause a civil war. So the resulting civil war broke the empire for the time being. And then uh, the very distinct cultures of the Nibane Valley and the Colovians of the West would reunite once again to repel an invasion of Akaviri forces late in the First Era. So this is like uh, First Era 2703. Okay. And that, them rejoining back up, is what started the creation of the Second Empire. A man by the name of Remen Cyrodiil, also known as the Worldly God, he was the Colovian founder of the Remen Dynasty. This man brought the two armies together and was eventually able to bring all of the races man in Tamriel, the races of man in Tamriel, back together to combat possible aggression from the Aldmer of Somerset. Because they were on a run at this point, the right. Aldmer. So the Imperials got back together and created the Second Empire to quell that threat of the Aldmer from Somerset. Another fun fact for you. Contrary to popular belief, the province of Cyrodiil was not named after Remen Cyrodiil. Instead, Remen had adopted the ancient alien name from the province of Cyrod as his surname. So Cyrodiil is named after the ancient alien province of Cyrod. Wow, okay. Yeah. 
So soon after, the Second Empire um, got back together to quell the threat of the Aldmer from Somerset. They would subsequently control every single province of Tamriel with the exception of Morrowind. Morrowind is gnarly. Dunmer are gnarly. Yeah, we so are. the empire's the empire's attempt at conquest of Morrowind would eventually lead to the end of the Remen control, and the Akaviri would take control as a result of something called the Four Score War. Hmm. What is the Four Score War? Tell me. I will. I will. <laughs> the Four Score War was a war between the Remen dynasty and the tribunal-led forces of the Dunmer where control of Morrowind was at stake. Remember, Morrowind was the last bastion that the Remen dynasty wanted to take over. This war lasted for 80 years, but was abruptly ended. You're going to love this, dude. The war lasted for 80 years, but was abruptly ended when Emperor Remen III was assassinated by the Morag Tongue. (laughs) Way to go, B-team. I know, it's like that's all it took was for, (laughs) for them to stab one guy in the throat. Why don't you do that 80 years ago? Right? See, if it was Dark Brotherhood, we would have done it 10 days in. Just saying. Maybe 12. You're such a badass. (laughs) 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 All right, so the throne after the assassination of Emperor Remen III by the Morag Tong, the throne was passed to the Akaviri uh, potentate Veristu Shea, who ended the further attacks against the province of Morrowind. Huh. Yes. Another fun fact. Many of the old forts and castle ruins that you see in Skyrim are leftover remnants of the fortification network built by the Remen to defend against the Akaviri invasion of the First Era. Wow. Yes, and that goes for not only Skyrim, but surrounding zones, such as Reaper's March. And I want you to remember that fun fact as we end our show. Mm-hmm. You listen to the tales of what Jibs and I have been up to for the past week when our show ends. This rings true. So the Akaviri uh, potentate would rule until uh, about mid in the second era, about year 430. But the empire would once again crumble to poor leadership and a series of assassinations. (laughs) So this failure led to what is known now as the Interregnum. Let's talk a little bit about what the Interregnum is. The Interregnum is a period of history... Between the demise of the Second Empire and the declaration of the Third Empire by Tiber Septum. Crap gets super interesting right here. So, yeah, put the baby down and pay attention. All right? <laughs> put your responsibility away for a second. Yes. And listen, listen to, to what I'm saying. This is, crap gets really cool right here. So, anyway. During this five-century period in between the Second Empire and the Declaration of the Third Empire by Tiber Septum, a heated battle for political control took place between racial alliances, small kingdoms, and petty states. Most of the conflict occurred in the province of Cyrodiil alone, where the Empire of Cyrodiil existed by name only. Cyrodiil being fought for. Huh. By small kingdoms, petty states, racial alliances. Does that sound familiar, my friends? It does sound This familiar. 
is the period of the Elder Scrolls Online. This is the fight for Cyrodiil. It's what we're doing right now. It's what we're what you're playing when you go to Cyrodiil. So eventually, it would take the influence of a notable Nord to reunite the Imperial province. Tiber Septum was given control over the forces of Kulakane, a Kalovian king. The enemies of Kulakane were quickly dispatched by Tiber Septum as a new general. And this was the first step in reuniting Cyrodiil. So Kulakane was assassinated in uh, year 854 of the Second Era. Tiber Septum steps in, assumes the throne, and subsequently ends up winning over the hearts and minds of Cyrodiil itself, reforging their strength and their unity under Tiber Septum's self-proclaimed Third Empire. Hmm. He just came in and said, Second Empire is over. I'm in charge. I start the third right now. We're starting fresh. You know, this isn't a, a snide remark, but it sounds very imperial. Uh, based off just the way that you know, over all these years that we've interacted with imperial NPCs, this sounds very imperial. <laughs> yeah, but still not as douchey as the Altmer. Yeah, that's that's true. That. That's just, a whole level of douchebaggery. You just—it's hard to a reach. A whole new level of douchebaggery because I can, I can get behind what the Imperials stood for with their cosmopolitanism. Right. right. You know, just unite everybody under one banner, under one way of life. I, I, I can totally get behind that. Right. But there still has to be some element of respecting all the other cultures that are out there because. It, I mean, dude, it rings true in life today. There's so many cool cultures out there, and you just can't close your minds off to them. Um, so it's the same here. I mean, I would... Right. You know, so I wonder, I'd like to dive more into Imperial uh, way of life and, and how they reacted to those other provinces when they you know, came in contact with, say, the Khajiit or the Argonians. You know, what did they right. think there? Are they going to you know, try and turn them? Or are they going to allow them to continue to practice their heritage and maybe still live, you know, kind of a a more civilized life under Imperial rule? Mm -hmm. So, okay, another fun fact. The Imperials, we probably know this one, but the Imperials held Tiber Septim in such high regard that he was venerated as a god of the nine divines. He became the ninth divine. Right. But whether or not he was an actual god and worthy of that title is a fact that is long debated in the history of Tamriel and will probably be forever. So, hmm. yeah, it's kind of neat. So let's talk about some notable Imperials. Um, complete douchebaggery. Abner Tharn. <laughs> Abner Tharn, which, yeah. Which you, you know is the father to Clivia Tharn. Uh, she's the Empress Regent of Tamriel. So Abner, her pops, is the High Chancellor and Overlord of Nibene, and he is the one of the original members of the Five Companions, and not a friend <laughs> of Lyris Titanborn. Like you put this in the notes <laughs> at all? Yeah, Lyris wants to rip his throat out at every turn, but he is kind of a douchebag. But he's funnier than hell. Some of the stuff he says to Lyris. Right? Oh man! Yes. So, um, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm even talking about right now, it is the main quest line for your Elder Scrolls Online character. 
Um, play it. It's really freaking good. Agreed. Then there's Alessia, who we talked about, also known as Saint Alessia. She was the Nedic woman in the first era responsible for ending human enslavement by the aliens, and she founded the first Cyrodiilic Empire. Here's an interesting one that I remembered, and I was like, yeah, that one's cool. Uh, Lucien Lachance. He's a speaker for the Black Hand during the Third Era. So if you played Elder Scrolls Oblivion and you go through the Dark Brotherhood questline, he's the, he's the very first contact and recruiter for the Hero of Kavach, which is you, the player, into the Dark Brotherhood in Elder Scrolls Oblivion. I remember that. Yeah, then there is our retired friend with the bad <laughs> hip. And the creepy, creepy invitations to his cave. <laughs> Varen Aquilarios, also known as the Prophet, when first met by the Vestige, which is all of you, my friends. He's an Imperial Sorcerer, a Moth Priest, blind as a bat, and a former Emperor of Cyrodiil. He's a founding member of the Five Companions and is the main and is in the main quest line of the Elder Scrolls Online. Also, once again, if you don't know who the Prophet is, then you should probably take a screwdriver and... No. No, no. we're not doing that anymore? No. Okay. They just, just play the damn main quest line. <laughs> Beta Rays, I'm talking straight to you. He's never done Ooh. it. He's doing it right now. We shamed him into Every it, time. I think. Oh. Yeah. I think he likes it, too. It's I think a, he digs on Lyris it's like a I good, Tell you what, that's a whole lot of Nord right there. That's a whole lot of woman right there. That's a whole lot of Nord. She smother you with some love. I feel like one of just a hug alone would kill me. Like th- that yeah. woman is strong. <laughs> that's sexy as all hell. Oh, I like man. It. Well, good lore lesson. You know, I, I didn't realize so much what they stood for before, you know, uh, listening to this but now i i get it and i i'm i really do think i'm in your your boat i have a greater respect and appreciation for them but i don't think i'll go making an imperial anytime soon yeah um not into it i, I was thinking if anything if i was going to make an imperial i'd make it i'd change my race for my crafter <laughs> it's a merchant uh, there you go that makes sense yeah but but nah. No, nah, it's cool. I mean, I like the history of it, but it just, you know. Right. Is what it is. Cool armor. Nice yeah. job. Yeah. Thumbs up. Yeah, cool armor. I dig it. So, uh, as everybody knows, we have been PvPing quite a bit lately uh, with the um, Mid-Year Mayhem event going on. So, the area that a lot of us are getting drawn to is Cyrodiil. And... Cyrodiil has a lot of ties to the aliens. And everywhere you go in Tamriel, there is something that you will run into that has an air of the aliens and their history. So I think uh, we thought this was a pretty appropriate time to talk about the aliens and let you know a little bit about them. Great. The aliens are also known as the Heartland High Elves or the Wild Elves. And they were the first race ever to establish an empire in Tamriel. So even from the days before history was ever recorded, the aliens ruled the region of what we now call Cyrodiil. 
A little bit about their physical traits. Because the aliens are direct descendants of ancient Old Mary or the High Elves, they they look like High Elves, essentially. Um, they possess the same traits of that type of ancestry. But the one thing that the aliens did have is that they spoke a little bit of a different dialect than the High Elves, and it was called the Aliadun. Uh, it's very similar to Old Mary's, but that's what the aliens spoke. Now, they have a very rich history. I know a lot of the stuff that we cover does have a rich history. But the one thing that stuck out to me most is that the aliens, as you will see, are a little bit more douchey than the Aldmer. Is that possible? <laughs> it's totally possible, and you're going to find out why. I was actually... like, Remember how I didn't like the slowed? Yeah. Okay, so the aliens were incredibly resourceful and smart and unbelievably good at the arcane arts but right. some of the crap they did you're gonna see you'll see total okay. douchebaggery so the aliens direct descendants of the ancient old mary the origins of the aliens began in the dawn era or the early merithic era as many mer were departing from the somerset isles so this was one of those splinter groups Super, super early. We're talking Dawn, maybe Merithic era, that traveled away from the Somerset Isles in hopes of creating their, a new culture in new land. So those who became aliens, they, they started, they basically landed and started to uh, manifest as aliens in the central and southwest regions of Tamriel. Uh, most of the most of these pioneers actually left Somerset in order to escape again the strict old married regulations against the worship of Daedra, because these folks wanted to worship the Daedra. And then there were some other existing issues in the region at the time, uh, for the reason that they decided to bail. Hmm. But most of these pilgrims settled in the heartland of Cyrodiil itself, as documented by uh, the very well-known cartographer known as Topal the Pilot. Uh, far away from high elven home and culture and influence, the new aliated culture really started to thrive. So one thing that was commonplace was Daedric worship. Um, the aliens, that was already in place in the areas before the aliens arrived. But once they arrived, they followed suit. So instead of these Daedric cults being looked down upon... The aliens were one of the main reasons that this form of a religion religion became very celebrated in the region. Hmm. So even like the worst of the Daedric princes became revered after they started to be endorsed by alien kings and political figures once they started to um, establish their empire. So the aliens were actually known to strike pacts with the Daedra in order to benefit their way of life. Many of them sought um, like power, blessings, among other things. They worked with the Daedra to conquer their enemies and extend their rule. And then eventually the aliens dominated and enslaved the human race in Cyrodiil, especially the Nedic people. We talked about the Nedic people as um, when we talked about the Imperials as being um, a part of the base of the Imperial race. But they were humans. So the aliens actually in their domination enslaved the human race, including the Nedics. Um, 
And then slavery just became commonplace as the aliens gained um, almost complete control of Cyrodiil. So in alien society, the aliens, like, they would frequently adorn themselves with feathers and magical beads. Um, like I said, they were also known as the wild elves, not necessarily like wood elves, but they were the wild elves, the Cyrodiil. Um, so they struck, or they stuck to more, many of them stuck to more uh, natural roots, um, barbaric roots. Uh, they had a, a very distinct fascination with the number eight, which is speculated to be attributed to the eight divines later created by the pantheon St. Alessia. So the aliens were not known to be a kind race. Instead of having a reputation as being arrogant, which they still were, um, they were very aggressive and warlike in nature. They all kept slaves. Um, the slaves were utilized in agriculture, construction, maintenance of their infrastructure, and then also for entertainment purposes. And this is where it gets kind of dark. The aliens were notoriously cruel to their slaves. They would go to great lengths to create these elaborate methods of torture and subjecting their slaves to it for some form of like a strange pleasure. Some of the worst methods of torture found in alien kingdoms um, were where the Daedric princes were worshipped. One such method that they used was called tiger sport. And that involved the immolation or burning of human children. Whoa. Dark. Yeah. Way too dark. Douchebags. So what happens to them, I'm actually kind of happy about. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So with a reverence for high, hel for high elven religion, the aliens believed that Nern was composed of the four basic elements of earth, water, air, and light. They believed that the most powerful form was starlight and that the stars in the sky were the link between Mundus. And remember talking about Mundus. Yep. Mundus is a plane of existence that encompasses Nern. And Aetherius, which we also talked about as the immortal plane of origin and all magic in the arcane arts all takes place on, on Aetherius. So they thought that the starlight and the stars in the sky were the link between Mundus and Aetherius. So having this strong connection and affinity for the magical arts, the aliens constructed alien wells across the landscape of Cyrodiil from um, ethereal fragments, particularly meteoric, uh, meteoric iron. So you've all seen alien wells strewn across the landscape, and they still survive. Many of the wells that still exist are used even still to replenish the magic energy of mages. So the meteoric glass was specially cut into a stone called the Welkin stone. Welkin meaning, literally meaning sky children. And they were used as storage containers for this magical energy. The aliens had also discovered a way to store and release memories to the user of these stones. So actual memories being stored, not just power, but memories being stored within these stones. And then another type of stone of stone that was created by the aliens are known as Varla stones. The word Varla itself means star in Aliadun, and these stones, very similar to Welkin stones, were also crafted from meteoric glass or fragments of Aetherius that have fallen down to Nern in the form of shooting stars. Hmm. Varla stones, which you can remember from some of the other games, are mm -hmm. used to recharge all enchanted weapons in your inventory. Yeah. 
but the stone is destroyed in the process. So it sounds an awful lot like a soul stone to me. Yep. Yep. Um, and then many of these stones were contained in cages that must be opened before the stone could be used. Let's talk a little bit about Aelid society. Aelid society was comprised of several different kingdoms united under one empire. Now, this particular empire, the Aelid Empire, lasted until about year 243 of the First Era, when their champion, Umaril the Unfeathered, was killed and the White Gold Tower fell. Some interesting stuff. I got some cool fun facts in here. The Aelids were the original founders of the Imperial City in Cyrodiil, which they called the Temple of the Ancestors. The tower was built as a replica of the Adamantine Tower, remember up in High Rock, off the coast of High Rock, right. and housed actual crystallized blood from the heart of Lorcan in its founding stone. Whoa. Yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah. But because of their incredible douchebaggery and their enslavement, there was a major downfall of the aliens. And that came in the form of, we talked about this a little bit last week, that came in the form of the Alessian Slave Rebellion in um, the first era, year 242. And this was inspired, you know, Queen Alessia started this up, but this was inspired by the strength and unity of the Nords in the northern regions of Tamriel. So the rebellion was very perfectly timed. When the full assault of the rebellion was launched, a civil war was happening within the Aelid Empire, most likely due to like religious differences within the Aelid Empire. But they took advantage of this, and it further reinforced the Alessian offensive as rebel Aelid forces joined with Alessia and her cause. So they were bailing out. And we're basically going, you know what? Those guys are kind of douchebags. We're going to join up with you and we're going to defeat them. So that's exactly what happened. Hmm. So further to that, the northern region of Skyrim came to Alessia's aid as they were fighting to free their enslaved relatives that were under alien control. Here's where something very interesting and very relevant to what we're doing in Cyrodiil right now with the Mid-Year Mayhem. Um a lot of the achievements that you get speak of somebody named Pelina Whitestrick, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So here's another little fun fact. It is said that entire settlements of aliens were slaughtered at the hand of Alessia's, Alessia's champion by the name of Pelina Whitestrick. Pelina Whitestrick, as you may remember, if you're taking part in the Mid-Year Mayhem, which coincidentally runs until August 6th, is also known as the Divine Crusader. He was an immortal hero, a legendary warrior, a sorcerer king. So far, he sounds like a freaking badass. He fought to. Uh, he fought a slave. Yes, he fought as slave queen Alessia's champion. But it was rumored that he was sent by Shore, which is the Nordic representation of the god Lorcan, to champion the cause of mankind and stop the elves from destroying it. Kind of mm. cool. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I was like, that, that's some cool stuff. Now I know who that guy is. Yeah. So, after one year of conflict, the Alessian Slave Rebellion had reached the White Gold Tower and had completely conquered its defenses. Soon after that, the shift of power in Tamriel was won by men. They were able to overthrow the Aelid Empire. 
the loss of the empire and in particular the loss of the white gold tower was absolutely devastating for the aliens and um the history books really emphasize the fact that this impact cannot be understated in the fall of the aliens wow the loss of the white gold tower marked the marked the late alien period the beginning of the late alien period and the tower itself was actually transformed into the imperial palace by alessia and her descendants hmm. so after conquering many of the outposts of the aliens alessia outlawed the worship of daedric princes in all Cyrodiil and then focused on hunting down and eliminating any remaining daedra worshiping aliens so she was like on a mission like you guys are done hmm. um some of the Aleatic culture did survive and resentment and disdain for the new form of government really manifested very, very quickly from the remaining Aleat nobles and politicians. This prompted the forming by, by Alessia. She formed the Alessian order in the first era year 361. So this became very widely known as a very powerful theocracy of the Alessian empire. The Alessian order, they started enforcing doctrines and set forth a foundation for like a new monotheistic influence in Tamriel that still remains today and we know that influences the divines. So the enforcements of these new laws and the new doctrines did not require much force because by that time the overwhelming power shift that had taken place over the Aeliads like completely took the, the wind out of their sails. The remaining aliens, they had no fight left in them. They were just completely overwhelmed. The ones that were left simply left the region of Cyrodiil, and a lot of them were absorbed into the elven populations of Valenwood and High Rock. Hmm. Which brings my next fun fact. The aliens may have had the last word in the struggle, and it depends on the interpretation of who you're talking to. Right. The aliens who left Cyrodiil, and joined High Rock, helped to strengthen the Dureni hege um, hegemony. Remember we talked about the Dureni hegemony? They were very, very powerful, elven, uh, basically conclave in High Rock. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the Dureni crippled the Alessian Empire and initiated its fall from grace. And a lot of those were said to be fleeing aliens. Right. So they kind of got there, like, as they're running away, they're like, ah, I punch you back. Right. But, huh. yeah, very, very interesting about how they had their fall from grace. But it just goes to show that, that the the worse people are, the harder people fight to free themselves from it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I agree. So There's still, like... This, this whole, like, so far, they kind of remind me of the Snow Elves, just cause not... Not for the context, but just the, the whole mysterious factor, the lesser known kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely do. And they both ha they both have some level of douchebaggery. I mean, imagine what the, um, think about what the Snow Elves did to yeah. the Nords. Yeah. You know, and the, and the way that whole thing went down, and they were doing it so that they could retrieve a source of power from where the Nords were sleeping at night. Yeah, long story short, they killed all the Nords in a city. Yeah, horrible. Yeah. So... I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I love playing an elf, but they got some jaded history. Sometimes it makes you wonder, like, if your stat wasn't as good as it was, would I be playing you right now? <laughs> yeah, probably would. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, 
So there's still a lot of questions about whether or not the Aelids are still among modern Tamriel, or at least Tamriel as we live and play in ESO. Um, there is some possibility that the Aelids still exist deep within the forests of Cyrodiil, but the last reported sightings of Aelids in Tamriel was like over a thousand years ago. So um, it is possible that there still are wild elves, but there's absolutely zero confirmation that they still exist. I bet they're there. Expansion! Expansion! Yep. Uh, let's talk about some notable Aelids. First, there is Hadul. Hadul is also known as the Fire King. He was an Aelid King of Sayatatar in Cyrodiil. He and his armies were undefeated until they faced uh, Pelina Whitestrake and the rebellion of Imperial slaves at the Battle of Siatatar. He was killed by Pelina Whitestrake. Hmm. That name comes up again. Right? Yep. Then there's Umaril the Unfeathered, which we talked about. He was uh, an immortal sorcerer and one of the last alien kings to have survived the war with St. Alessia. He's the main antagonist of the Knights of the Nine expansion. That was from Elder Scrolls Oblivion. And the main enemy of Pelinal Whitestrake. Interesting. This next one blew my mind and expanded my horizons just a little bit. Okay. Interesting uh, alien character by the name of Captain Nim. He's an alien ghost located in Glacier Crawl. I'm going, that doesn't really sound familiar at all. Well, it turns out that Nim once captained an airship, now embedded within the glacier at Glacier Crawl. I'm thinking none of this sounds familiar, like even remotely. A little more research. Captain Nim appeared in the Elder Scrolls Travels Shadow Key. Interesting. I've never heard of it either. Yeah. I'm like, what? So, yes, in 2004. There was a game by the name Elder Scrolls Travels Shadow Key released released for the Engage platform. What? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The setting for the single player multiplayer platform was Hammerfell, High Rock, and Skyrim. I okay. went, what? I've never heard of that, like, ever. Maybe it's only because, like, five people played and had an engage <laughs> it's kind of like the dreamcast i was one of those five but yeah i was it. also one of the five that had dreamcast but no. <laughs> um, dude can you i was like what i've never even heard of that i kind of fancy myself an elder scrolls guy now but holy crap hmm. elder scrolls travels shadow key wow pretty cool yep i'm gonna blow your mind are you ready oh god we <laughs> All right. We actually come in contact with an alien in Elder Scrolls Online. He goes by the name of King Lelorian. The King Lelorian. Oh, perfect. Yeah, now everybody knows who he is. Exactly, he, right? It's the pronunciation skills. The King Lelorian Dinar. And you come in contact with him in the main quest line. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Why don't I remember that he was an alien, though? I don't know. That's what he's known as, the last king of the aliens. Yeah, I do remember that. Okay. Huh. Yep. All right. Well, Mine. Let's guess who's playing through the main quest line again? Yep. Not me. Dumb, dumb head that forgot it. Yeah. Dumb, dumb, poopy head. 
Yep. So anyway, that is the lore lesson on the aliens. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. That was great. Well done, my friend. <laughs> anyway, today we're doing Thieves Guild, baby. I'm excited. Yes, we are talking the Thieves Guild today. And uh reason being is because we are pretty darn sure that on our trek to the west here, um, we have run into Thieves Guild members. May or may not uh, have happened last week. Um, but anyway, we figured it's, hey, look, the guy that we're running from, Old Elker, is situated in... A boss landing in Hughes, Spain. So that's where the Thieves Guild really originated from, and we're going to talk a little about it today. So mm-hmm. if you happen to operate better in the shadows, if you happen to be deft of hands and sleight of foot, <laughs> the like... Thieves Guild just may be looking to employ you. Sounds like a good <laughs> propaganda poster. <laughs> I know. They should actually pay me royalties for this. Mm. Um, the Thieves Guild is a very well-known and infamous faction of thieves operating throughout the land of Tamriel, as we all know. The guild is comprised of the most professional burglars, robbers, pickpockets, and smugglers, and they're known to operate from safe houses located in many of Tamriel's largest towns. You can sell your goods off if you choose. Yeah. So the Thieves Guild is said to have been originated from a group of thieves operating out of a Boz landing in southern Hammerfell sometime before the second era, year 549. So it could be just a little bit before the ESO timeline, but that's about where we're at is, um, is in the ESO timeline is early in the Thieves Guild's life. Mm-hmm. Um, the originators of the Thieves Guild were have said to have grown... By, it started as a very small sect, and then um, they're said to have grown by overtaking many of the unorganized outlaw groups across Tamriel, giving them a code of ethics, and then in turn giving them order amongst their ranks. So people like the structure, well, yeah, this could work out. So people just kind of got inducted into this thing that was the Thieves' Guild as a group. The Thieves' Guild is known to have ties to Nocturnal, who is the patron of thieves. Nocturnal is a Daedric prince, also known as the Mother of Night, or the Night Mistress, or Lady Luck. She is not considered an evil Daedra. And I say she because she normally manifests in the form of a human woman draped in a hooded cloak and then adorned with a pair of nightingale birds. Perched on her wrist. So we mm. will get to the Nightingale tie-in here. But she is shrouded in mystery. She hails from within the realm of night and darkness. And she's known to provide protection and luck to the thieves operating within the shadows. The Thieves Guild. Definitely known to operate outside the confines of the law. But this has been tolerated in many areas of Tamriel because the guild actually helps to regulate crime. What? what? Yes, yeah. they do. <laughs> but they do. So the Thieves Guild has very strict rule set. They do not tolerate competition from outside competitors, hmm. which blows me away that a Boz Collectors is still allowed to practice. There's something funny going on there. But anyway, mm-hmm. 
So they do not really tolerate competition from outside competitors, and they're very diligent about policing their own members. Their members are not allowed to steal from each other. They are not allowed to commit murder or take advantage of the poor, especially that last one. They cannot take advantage of the poor. Law authorities in the areas of operation of the Thieves' Guild are also very, very well compensated in the form of bribes. So they kind of turn a blind eye when needed. They also possess the resources, the Thieves' Guild, possesses the the resources and the the coin to maintain their own black market of stolen goods and then a very vast network of informants. This is another reason why they do not mess with the poor. In most cases, the informants of the Thieves' Guild are the poor and the beggars on the streets who are, yes, who are many times looked after by the members of the Guild. So they always say, when you go into a, into a town in any of these games, they say, if you want the real information, talk to the beggars and thieves. Huh. Or the poor and the beggars, yeah. And they'll, they will give you the, the skinny. That is interesting and seen in many great movies. It is. I always donate to the thieves. Not the thieves, I'm sorry. To the poor. I always do. In, in all my games. I just... I don't know. I'm not We're trying to such get points offices. for that. Uh, I'm not trying to get points for that. I'm just saying I, you know, I always there's, do. There's people actually calling for, they want to know the contrast because we're so completely opposite in the way that we play. They want to know why and how that works. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> they want to know why you give all the mo- You would give the money to the poor and some cases, as far as in-game, we're talking in-game, by the way, and right. I carry on my... Merry murdering way. Well, because you're a douche. <laughs> you're an in-game. My lore opinion is that you're an in-game douchebagger. Oh, a douchebagger? Douchebagger. Oh, okay. Who doesn't give to the douchebaggers? <laughs> I did that. I'm sorry. Carry on. <laughs> Dude, you totally broke my lore train of thought. Lore train. <laughs> lore train. It's oh, <laughs> another man. term we just coined. Hop on the lower train one time. Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. Each chapter of the Thieves' Guild operates under general guidelines, yet they still have their own ability to have a unique style and reputation. So some chapters are very, very secretive, and they're so secretive that the locals are unable to establish if they even exist, or maybe are they just very, very, very skilled at operating underground. Lots of rumors circulated about, oh, yeah, the Thieves' Guild, blah, 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 in any of the games that you play. Mm-hmm. People don't really know that they exist. Some of the most infamous chapters of the Guild resided in Iliac Bay and Morrowind during uh, a little bit later in the Third Era. The Guild in Morrowind, however, experienced a very severe amount of opposition from a rival crime syndicate called the Kimona Tong. This well-established crime syndicate was known for planning and executing their own heists against very wealthy nobles and successful merchants. And the Thieves' Guild in Morrowind was reportedly eliminated by the Kimona Tong with the help of the Fighters' Guild in the region just before the Fourth Era. Wow. There's a theme with Morrowind. Morrowind has always just kind of done their own thing. Yeah. It's kind of like the Wild West of Tamriel. It, it it very much is, except for they have their their houses and their houses 
holds so much importance to them that they just they stick to that and anything that that builds around that they don't care it's the same thing with the dark brotherhood we don't care that there's another assassins league we don't really care we have our own the morak tongue and and that's it and if you try and encroach just like in this case with the thieves guild morrowind kind of handles handles its own stuff yeah it kind of no you yet no so I like that. They give the yet no a lot. Yet no. Mm-hmm. That's not happening. So that's kind of cool. Okay. So in Riften, the Thieves Guild of Skyrim during this time enjoyed a very much more unhindered existence. And that was most likely because of the guild's loose interpretation of how to conduct their operations. Hmm. So the guild was known to be much more violent and to have committed actual authorized murders both to retain their reputation and to ward off competition. Which kind of goes against how the Thieves Guild wants to operate. But... Again, Morrowind. Exactly. Hmm. Okay, fun fact. Um, everybody knows about the Stones of Baron's Eye, right? Kind of a side thing you can do in Skyrim. But Baron's Eye herself was the Dunmer Queen of Mornhold. And she was known to have joined the ranks of the Thieves' Guild in Riften and was taught the ways of the thief by a Khajiit named Ferris. Not Ferris as in Bueller, Ferris <laughs> as in the Khajiit thief. My mistake, because I thought I saw him at one time in yeah. game. Don't be mixing lore. Don't be mixing this lore with the lore of Ferris Bueller. Look, there's no days off here. Right. right. There's no days off. Um, so Baron's Eye became a very well-known thief for her skills in spellcasting, speechcraft, and negotiation, which I love the way that was put as I was reading through this um, because she was basically a stealthy mage with a silver tongue. That's really cool. Really, really, really cool. So she kind of has like, you know, maybe some, she's got some bard stuff in her because she's got that silver tongue, real good at, at speech craft. And she's stealthy like a rogue, but she wears a robe and she casts finger wiggly spells. How awesome would that be for the first novel? That's a story right there. Shut up. Mm-hmm. You're right. Totally right. So, okay. We spoke about Nocturnal, our Daedric are pretty, pretty Daedric Prince. I only say that because she wears pretty sexy stuff. But nocturnal. We talked about the nightingales that she's adorned with on her wrists. One of the three mortal servants of the Daedric Prince nocturnal, the nightingales. They are actually, they're people, they're beings. But she chooses But they're granted the power over shadow, granted the power over subterfuge and strife in exchange for their service to Nocturnal. They're bound in contract to Nocturnal, and the Chosen Nightingales are sworn to serve the Nightmistress by protecting the Twilight Sepulchre in Nocturnal's realm of Evergloam. If you have played through the Thieves' Guild content in Skyrim, it lays all this out for you. Nocturnal chooses to retain the services of these nightingales until she feels that they have fulfilled their contracts. 
So, huh. that in Skyrim is one of my favorite things to do. Roll a new character, I go through the Thieves Guild, because I really dig, not only do I just dig the storyline of serving Nocturnal, right, and becoming, no spoilers, but uh, a very powerful thief, but the armor that you earn at the end of that is awesome. I don't think it, there's any in the game that look better. So Really? That. That's a bold statement. Hmm. Yeah, buddy. I love it. Um, okay, so let's talk about a couple of uh, Nocturnal's relics. The first is the Cowl of Nocturnal. This will be very, very familiar to you if you've played any of the other Elder Scrolls games, Oblivion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Cal of Nocturnal is one of the most famous relics connected to the Thieves Guild and their deity Nocturnal, and is the Cal of Noct- It's called the Cal of Nocturnal. It's a medium armor headpiece that has the ability to completely hide the identity of those who don it from any mortal knowledge. Nobody who came into contact with the wearer of the cowl could remember the name of its possessor even if the mask wasn't being worn at the time. So even if they were to remove the cowl in plain sight of others, it would not break the spell. So pretty much you have that thing on or around you and you are the possessor of it, then you are anonymous. That's really cool. Nobody will know who you are like at all. So Mm -hmm. if you steal something, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to know. So I thought that was cool. Okay. During the Oblivion Crisis, the Thieves Guild was headed up by the Gray Fox. This is a fun fact, by the way. Kind of switching gears. The Thieves Guild during the Oblivion Crisis was headed up by the Gray Fox. This is a name that's passed on from leader to successor by relinquishing the ownership of the Cowl of Nocturnal. Does that make sense? Yep. So... I have the Cala Nocturnal. I am the leader of the Thieves Guild. I pass it on to Jibs, who may or may not be worthy of it, but I pass it on to Jibs. And uh-huh. when when that happens, he becomes the Gray Fox. So since this leader succession thing has been taken place, um, and the lead the new lead or the new successor of the Cal becomes the Gray Fox. Many actually believed during this time period that the gray fox had been alive for like some 300 years because they just, they didn't know. The cow makes everybody dumb pretty much. Yeah. So they just, you know. Quick question. Did you, no did idea, you achieve but... that? Did you get that cow in the blue? Yes. Me too. Yes, I did. Yep. Yes, I did. Yeah. Really, Good really times. cool. Uh, cool thing. It was a really neat storyline. The way that whole thing happens, you know, with, yeah. Imperial Guard, or the Imperial Guard Captain, who had a really had a thing for the Gray Fox, and just hunted and hunted and hunted him. Well, through the storyline, you get to go in and basically subterfuge everything, and you really, you really screw over this Guard Captain. It's pretty funny. <laughs> so I think back to it, I'm like, yeah, I finally got him. Good times. Okay, uh, a second relic that is uh, the Thieves Guild has been known to possess from time to time. The Skeleton Key. Possibly the most underestimated Daedric ev- artifact ever known. 
This particular artifact has appeared in many of the Elder Scrolls games, including Arena, Daggerfall, Morrowind, Oblivion, and then uh, finally Skyrim. And we're probably going to see it in the next one, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. The famed key has the ability to defeat... Oh my god, I start talking about the next Skyrim. I got super giddy. (laughs) I forgot everything I was going to say. Totally. I totally just... I totally just... uh, Cal of nocturnal all of you. I became a great fox. Cal of nocturnal all of us. All right. A cowl of nocturnal all of you. Mm. So, okay. You've been anyway, nocturnal. The, all right. the famed key, the skeleton key, has the ability to defeat any physical lock without breaking. Yes, that would be awesome. Although, I have about ten thousand freaking lock picks in ESO, but that's okay. So anyway, not only does this key have the ability to defeat any physical lock, it also has the ability to defeat any metaphysical barriers, such as doorways to the plains of oblivion. <laughs> hey, you want to go see oblivion? I got a key. <laughs> yeah, let's go I mean, for a weekend trip. You never know. We'll just we'll cruise down right there. there. Yeah, we'll cruise down there. We'll have a meal. Maybe cruise back. Listen to some see screaming. See how it goes. Maybe have a whole meal of food. Mm. See how it goes. Anyway, the key, normally housed in the inner sanctum of Nocturnal's Twilight Sepulchre, has changed many hands over the years, including members of the famed Thieves' Guild. Which brings me to my next and final point on the Thieves' Guild. If you own the DLC for ESO and you have not played through the Thieves' Guild content, make some time. It really is pretty cool to, to, to do so. It's really a fun quest line, and it uh, it opens up a whole new skill line for your character, and it really is pretty fun leveling up those skills. Um, there's nothing more fun than going into a boss and seeing what kind of bounty or lack of bounty you can earn just mm-hmm. by stealing a metric crap ton of crap off people. <laughs> It's really fun to do. Um, and then the other games in the Elder Scrolls series, the Thieves Guild content is some of the best content in the game. And I, sp- I specifically say that for Skyrim. I really, out of all the other games, Morrowind, the only, the only two that I played, Morrowind and Oblivion and then Skyrim. Skyrim is definitely the best. Thieves Guild content. Mm. Totally dug it. Um, it's just really, really good storylines and you get to kind of see the internal struggles of the guild itself and then um you have a chance to own some of these relics yeah i tell you what when you go from playing dark brotherhood which was so maniacally evil uh in some ways it was struck i mean it was definitely structured but in some ways it just felt very loose you go to the thieves guild and it just feels polar opposite like they feel so legitimately about their craft i mean not that dark brotherhood wasn't but it just they're the Thieves Guild has such a, I mean, both have you know some pretty bloodied up slates, but theirs is a little bit cleaner than the Dark Brotherhoods, and it's definitely there's a good contrast there. Right, and then lastly, um, if you have not started the Thieves Guild quest line in ESO, you can start the quest line by finding Quen, Q U E N. Um, she's a cute little Altmer. Um, not she's a novice Altmer thief. Anyway, she will offer you the job from any outlaw's refuge in Tamriel, and you get to accompany her on a heist that she planned at Fulstrom Homestead, and then 
you will be introduced to the Thieves Guild from there. Yep. Do it though, it's fun. You know, I've never done that quest line yet. I think. Oh my god. I'm going you're such to. A no you're such a noob. I'm so going to have to do it this week. I'm going to start on this week. I'll report back. Okay. Okay, so anyway, uh, my lore book this week. Yeah, sorry. Open her up. I know that we have gone through, what, this is 23 different lore lessons. We have covered a lot of content. We have a very solid foundation on the divine beings, the races, some of the geography of Tamriel, the villains, saviors of Tamriel. So we wanted to kind of get back to the basics and give you an idea of what's really going on in Tamriel as we live and play through our character stories. So we figured it'd be a good idea to dive right back into a little bit deeper explanation of the storyline of ESO. Not necessarily giving spoilers, but just setting the foundations for what you're going to find in each of the different zones and why certain people are here and um, what the motivations are for each of the factions and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And who the heck are the factions? How are they... How are they brought together and why are they all vying for control in Cyrodiil? But what what is so, that? I noticed that last episode. What? What? Is there is there multiple eyes that you're pronouncing there? Yes, there's two eyes in Cyrodiil. That's why I say Cyrodiil. Alright, well I didn't know if you were stroking out last episode and I just didn't say anything, so I'm just gonna confirm. Oh the last thing I want to do is confuse you with a word. <laughs> Touche. You're a douche. Yes. Alright, go ahead. <laughs> Alright, so it's important to know that a few years before we even stepped foot in Tamriel, a terrible arcane explosion rocked the Imperial City. You do get to see part of this in your main storyline, um, but this explosion is known as a soul burst. It killed many people, it caused like freakish, unseasonable weather, and affected just about every province in Tamriel. Hmm. Earthquakes shook the ground, storm fronts eroded the landscapes, and volcanoes erupted across the land, everywhere from Skyrim to Morrowind to the coastlines of Valen Wood and beyond. The soul burst was caused by a fallen mage, now Necromancer. We've talked about him plenty of times before. His name is Manamarco. Hmm. And what it caused was an arcane tear between Mundus and Oblivion. This was what was needed in order for Molag Ball to kind of slip in. Because remember that Manamarco and Manamarco is basically the lackey, a lackey for Molag Ball. But Manamarco, by tricking the moth priest, Varen Aquilarios, which is also known as the prophet, our good friend with bad hips, he was had had he was the new emperor of Cyrodiil. So Manamarco, what he did, he, ha he harnessed the power from the Amulet of Kings. And you'll know that there's a struggle to find the Amulet of Kings in your main quest line. Mm -hmm. And he also was able to disparage the newly lit dragon fires to cause the soul burst, which sent af aftershocks to every corner of Tamriel as Nern was literally pulled closer to the realm of Cold Harbor, which is Molag Ball's stomping grounds. That's his shtick. Mm. So Nern, because of the soul burst, was literally unhinged from the very fabric of the multiverse, 
moving toward Molag Ball's realm of domination and enslavement. This, of course, was a threat to all existing races on Tamriel. So what happens as a result? Dark anchors begin to fall across the land. You've all seen them and heard them. And they embed into the very surface of Nern. So the dark anchors are these very powerful magical constructs, which are actually portals from Cold Harbor directly into Tamriel, and they spread at a very, very rapid rate. So you take care of one, another one's going to drop. Having taken control of the Imperial City in Cyrodiil, Molag Ball's plan is perfectly timed. So, one of the factions, the Daggerfall Covenant, under attack from the undead, and an unlikely alliance arises between Somerset, Phelanwood, and elsewhere, which, of course, is the Daggerfall Covenant. Um, actually, sorry, I just lied. Okay. <laughs> the High Elf... <laughs> That's actually it's actually the um, but um, so the high elves, the wood elves, and the Khajiit band together to thwart the threat and battle the two other factions that are formed in the north and east between Black Marsh, Morrowind, and Skyrim. And we're we're going to talk about all of these, uh-huh. but they're all battling for control and the retaking of the White Gold Tower, which is now under Daedric control. So if you've run the White Gold Tower dungeon, it's loaded with Daedra. Mm-hmm. Because at this particular time, Molag Ball has taken control of Cyrodiil and the Imperial City and the White Gold Tower. That made a lot of sense to me now that I research and write about it. Right. So here's a little fun fact for you. During this time, necromancy has been declared legal by the Empire. We've talked about this before when we talked about necromancy. And the Arcane University, once home to the Mages Guild, has been turned over to the necromancers of the Worm Cult. What? Who all, yeah, they all work for Molag Ballbag. And that's why they're opening portals to bring in Daedra. Wow. Yeah. Thought you might like that. Now let's cover the alliances. Okay. The Daggerfall Covenant. One of the three. This is founded uh, in High Rock in the Second Era, year 567, under High King Emric. The Daggerfall Covenant aims to remain traditionalist at heart and reclaim the Second Empire, forging peace and prosperity throughout Tamriel. Now, these three races that make up the Daggerfall Covenant were traditionally enemies, the Bretons, the Red Guards, and the Orcs. But they all united when their territories were threatened by Molag Ball's enemies. And there was also a major opposing of the marriage of High King Emric to a Redguard princess from Hammerfell. Hmm. So the unification of these three races led to stability in the region. And remember, this is all a, a little bit before when they, when they all unified. So the unification led to stability in the reason, despite severe racial differences in the covenant. You know, their traditional differences are they're set in stone, but they all came to look beyond their differences and bound together to restore a peaceful way of life. Now, the Red Guard in particular, although they were the fewest in number in the alliance, 
they more than made up for their lack of numbers because of their tactical prowess on the battlefield. And we definitely have talked about that. I won't mm-hmm. even go over that anymore. They are the badasses of the battlefield by far. Yep. The orcs were bound by a sense of honor to King Emric. Um, and they had truly, orcs had truly believed that the Bretons had earned their loyalty. So they served as the Daggerfall Covenant's most uh, most vicious infantry and provided weapons from uh, the most accomplished orc smiths, which we talked about before. The orcs are, are very, very good uh, in the area of making weapons and armor. Mm-hmm. So the Bretons themselves, High King Emmerich being one of them, or the masters of politics, masters of mercantilism and negotiation. So they kind of puppeted this whole thing. And then, of course, the Bretons are also very, very good at the arcane arts and elemental manipulation. Um, So they also were very, very formidable on the battlefield. But that's kind of the history behind the Daggerfall Covenant and why those three races ended up together in a unified, unified alliance. Now let's talk the Aldmeri Dominion. Definitely the youngest of all three alliances, but the Aldmeri Dominion was formed and led by the Altmer of Somerset. They're very, very influential people, and they believed it was their duty, the Altmer, believed it was their duty to take up arms against the other factions in order to restore elven rule to Tamriel and to vanquish the forces of Molagbal from the mortal plane. Hmm. At the same time, Imperials from Colovia and Nibonay were openly invading the regions of Valenwood and elsewhere. So these are two factions of men invading the areas of the Bosmer and the Khajiit. Both Bosmer and Khajiit, Mur and then a beast race. So they both were a little pissed off at the men. Mm. And they also wanted to vanquish them from their homeland because these Imperials were invading these areas. So the Imperials basically were assaulting the regions for their resources so they could be more powerful in battle and build their armies and all that. But the Bosmer and Khajiit will join forces with the Altmer in a very unlikely alliance just to defend their homelands from this invasion. So Beast Race... And then two races of, of myrrh get together to combat the races of men. Mm-hmm. thought that was cool. Agreed. So a few high elves were known to have left their isolationist ways on Somerset to join the fight on the mainland. There wasn't that many that came over. But because of the Altmer's influence, they still lead the Dominion's strategic vision. And they, their main goal is to restore elven power and to end the tyranny of the empires of men. The heart of the Aldmeri Dominion is in Elden Root because it's on, it's in Valenwood and it is, becomes the logistical base of the Aldmeri Dominion, even though not all Bosmeri tribes had fully committed to the Dominion, they still provided a valuable contribution and when I talk about the Bosmeri tribes, I specifically mean the ones that still follow the Green Pact. They weren't fully sold on the whole thing. Hmm. But they still saw the need because of the people, because of the men coming into their territories to invade, they still saw the need to support the invasion or the um, 
defensive forces of the Aldmeri Dominion to try and keep those men out. So what even those tribes did is they led the forces of the Aldmeri Dominion through the super dense woodland realm that was Valenwood because it's very, very difficult to navigate. But these Bosmeri tribes know it like the back of their hand. So that's kind of how they where they put their contribution. Gotcha. And then, yeah. And, you know, because they really wanted to evict the foreign invaders from their land and they felt that they needed to contribute in some way. Right. And it probably left a crap ton of fresh corpses for them to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right. So let's talk a little bit about still Aldmeri Dominion. Let's talk a little bit about the Khajiit and why they joined the Aldmeri Dominion. They felt indebted to the Altmer. And we've talked about this before. But the Altmer assisted the Khajiit during the blight of the Kanatan flu. This was one of the deadliest diseases to ever infect the populace of Tamriel, and it specifically decimated the Khajiit. Um, so having received that help from the Altmer during their time of need, the Khajiit joined the Altmeri Dominion, and they provided unmatched skill in battle they're outstanding in battle um they really became the main force of the alliance military um and they had this inept ability to instill fear in the hearts of their enemies just because of you know how quick they were how stealthy they were and then how fierce they were in battle so real quick fun fact about the Kanatan flu the kind Kana- of flu that's how i would have said it just to yeah. Just to be clear, it's a good thing I did. Yeah, yeah the Kanahattan flu. Indirectly, the Kanahattan flu was one of the main causes of the Three Banners War. And Three Banners War is just what we're talking about. That's exactly what this war is, the war between these three alliances for control of the imperial city in Cyrodiil. This flu destroyed the royal family of Wayrest, bringing High King Emric to the throne, right? Because, because it wiped out the royal family of Wayrest, it allowed room for High King Emmerich to move in. That's where he built the Daggerfall Covenant. The flu decimated elsewhere where the Khajiit live, motivating the Khajiit to join the Aldmeri Dominion out of gratitude for the Altmer who came to their aid. And then the flu also gave the Argonians, remember this flu was not, uh, the Argonians were not uh, super affected by this, but the flu gave the Argonians enough independence to join the Evanhart Pact as equals to the Dunmer rather than as slaves. Gotcha. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit more about the the Argonians as we go through the Evanhart Pact, but um, it seems like all they wanted was like validation, like such a like such a mellow race yeah. until they're until they're crossed. Yeah, and then it, it really seems like their motivation for this was just, hey, we'll fight with you, but. You treat us as equals. I mean, how freaking sad is that? Super sad, but anyway. It's sad. Yeah, because they were, I mean, they were enslaved, and they're, they're, we'll talk about their freaking baseline hatred for the for the Dark Elves is kind of crazy. Mm. So the Evanhart Pact. This pact was created through pure necessity, and the alliance of the Evanhart Pact is definitely the most volatile so the races of the Nord, the Dunmer, and the Argonians all hold a deep-seated resentment and distrust for one another, like bitter, bitter distrust for one another. Wow. But they still shared uh, hatred for the races that they fought against in order to 
you know, in order to really prove strong enough to unite them all under one common banner. Here's a little fun fact. One would think that because of the vast geographical separation between the regions of Skyrim with the Nords, Morrowind and the Dunmer, and Black Marsh and the Argonians, there's such a wide landscape between them all, you'd think that that would cause discord in itself amongst the Alliance, amongst the Evanheart Pact. But it actually helped to strengthen their bond. And here's why. Each of the races had such a vast area of their own to maintain, there were no internal squabbles over territories. Like, this area is ours, this wow. area is yours. Yeah, because everything was so separated. Yeah. So it eliminated one potential issue between these three races who already loathed each other because of history. Right. I thought that was kind of cool. That is cool. Okay, so the Evanhart Pact was formed 10 years before the events of ESL. It was actually formed in the second era, year 572. And it was formed when the Nord, Dunmer, and Argonian races fought side by side to repel the Akaviri invasion ravaging northeast Tamriel. A council of equals was formed between all three of these races, and it was known as the Great Moot, as an M-O-O-T. The Nords, having already conquered almost the entirety of Tamriel at one point, had a sense of entitlement to control of the land. They, they were um, responsible for defeating the Aliots, which we've talked about. They fought the Altmer out of High Rock and overtook most of Morrowind before the time of the Dark Elves. So they had this conquest built in them. Mm. Um, and then, of course, they're, they're, they're known to be very pow powerful warriors and fierce in battle. And the Nords just truly terrify their enemies because of their size and just the fact that they can go absolutely berserk in battle. Right. Okay. To complement the ferocity of the Nords in battle, the Dunmer were outstanding at diplomacy, subterfuge, and martial tactics, which we talked about when we covered the Dunmer. They were invaded, their territories were invaded throughout history, and they learned to trust absolutely no one. So the Dunmer, very, very secular. Hmm. So the oppression that had plagued them in the past and their history um, of quelling threats against their own freedom really prepped them for this conflict. So they felt right at home um, defending themselves within the Evanhart Pact. Now the Argonians... Very level-headed, very calm, very intelligent. For years and years have been slaved by the Dark Elves and therefore have a deep mistrust of the race. And if you've gone through any of the quest lines in those zones, you can feel it. I mean, it's palpable. Hmm. But desperate times call for desperate measures. So the Argonians, who excel in the area of guerrilla warfare... Uh, have been known to use the surrounding environment on the battlefield to strike at their enemies. And then for the Ebonheart Pack, they serve as scouts and skirmishers. And then they, they're able to basically disrupt and harass the enemy at every turn. So that kind of gives a, a brief history of where these alliances came from and what they're fighting for in Tamriel. You have kind of two things going on. On the mainland of Tamriel, you have this uh, all these different invasions going on. You have Molagbal's forces moving in through Dark Anchors and all these portals that the Worm Cult is opening up and releasing Daedra into the world. And at the same time, the very seat of power in Tamriel 
is up for grabs. It's whoever can get in there, vanquish the Daedra, take back the White Gold Tower, and defeat the other two alliances will claim Tamriel for the most part. They'll claim uh, Cyrodiil. Whoever claims Cyrodiil claims Tamriel. Hmm. So it's it's kind of cool. I mean, what do you got? What do you think? Uh, do you think they'll ever end the three banner war? Like someone will actually claim it in the expansion? Uh, I don't know, man. They they would have to do. They'd have to come up with some additional storyline for like the PvP threat. zone. Yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think it serves as a good platform mm. for the ongoing battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the way that they've kind of written this into the lore. I could yeah. see if there was ever a um, like a sequel game to mm-hmm. Elder Scrolls Online, how the storyline would advance. But right. as of now, nope, I doubt it. Agreed. Mm. Uh, yeah. So this conflict between all the alliances is known as the Three Banners War. Daggerfall Covenant, All Married Dominion, and Ebonheart Pact. Obviously, because each of them flies their own banner. There's three alliances, the Three Banners War. Also known as the Alliance War. Each alliance, fighting for what they believe to be right and just, puts forth their best soldiers on the front lines of Cyrodiil as they vie for control. At the same time, the heroes, which are us, playing in the PvE content, fight across the landscape of Tamriel to quell the threat of Molag Ball and his dark anchors, as he floods Daedra and Undead into our world. So wherever you choose to make your stand, we felt it was important for you to understand the motivations behind your character and the motivations behind each of these um, alliances so that you have an educated choice when you roll a new character and you choose a faction. Mm. So anyway... I hope you guys enjoyed that. Good luck and safe travels out there. It is a dangerous world and lots of stuff to be quelled. Hmm. That is good. Uh, gosh, it gives you a lot to think about your faction, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, oh, man, i got to go back and do a faction change now for most of my mm-hmm. dudes. Not happening. Ald Mary, thank you very much. That's right. Queen forever. Okay. Oh, hey. So we have not covered the Fighters Guild yet, and I figured that it was time. Mm-hmm. We're going to do so today. Is that it the, is... Go. Is Sorry. Is that the lore book you spawned with that little handy spell of yours? It is. Hmm. Okay. The Fighters Guild. Such a we all know fun. what it is. Mm-hmm. We're just going to kind of go into depth about... Who they is and where they come from. Mm-hmm. So everybody has a good understanding. So we're going to start with the words of Master Valena Daunton, an Imperial Warrior. Imperial Warrior. What? And the Choral Fighters <laughs> Guild Guildmaster. If you played Elder Scrolls Oblivion, you'll know who this is. She says the Fighters Guild is a brotherhood of warriors. We provide a service to Tamriel. Lending steel and shield to those who need our help. Whether that means ridding a town of an invading menace or protecting a helpless mage. Helpless mage. Mm-hmm. We'll take the contract. Quote, unquote. I'm just going to say this, dude. That Fighter's Guild quest line in Oblivion. 
that was cool. That was a fun feeling. It's a pretty cool one. And actually, I'm, I'm excited now with my new character because he is going to very appropriately dive right in. There you go. To the fighter's guild. Okay. So I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah. We'll get there, though. It's going to take time. He's got a lot of learning to do before we go there. So anyway, history of the fighter's guild. They were originally known as the Sifim, an organization of former Akaviri warriors. So the Fighters Guild is known as an entity with a presence across all of Tamriel. It provides a place of study, training, and employment for adventurers such as yourselves with martial prowess. Hmm. The guild, founded by uh, an Akaviri by the name of Daenerys Vess, was supported and chartered by Emperor Versidu Shai. He is a prominent Akaveri potentate before claiming the imperial throne after the death of Remen III in the Second Era, year 320. So the Fighters Guild is not that old, at no. least within our timeline of ESO. Right. Um, it actually has kind of a short life, to be honest with you. To, if you really kind of look at, as I present the history, when you kind of look at the effective time of the Fighters Guild, it's not that long. Hmm. So, kind of surprising. But right now, obviously, it's a, it's a thing in ESO, so enjoy it. All right. The Guild's original purpose was to provide public order without having to train and maintain a dedicated army. I'm going to read a little bit from the official charter of the Fighters Guild to bring a little bit more understanding of their focus. The Guild of Fighters provides employment to free swords and mercenaries and contracts to local citizens. Citizens may contract with the Guild for the removal of creatures and pests, rats, the delivery of goods on dangerous routes, the collection of beasts for the arenas, and other duties defined by the Guild Stewards. Now, in ESO, the Fighters Guild has been contracted by a private citizen to fight the Daedra. That's a little bigger than creatures or pests. Pest removal, really? That is your typical <laughs> kill 10 rats quest. And I really kind of lolled when I saw that yep. because I specifically remember in Skyrim, of course it was the beginning to a bigger quest, but you had to go into a brewery and you had to clear yes. out the rats oh my gosh, in there. Yes. And I was like, this is, that's an Easter egg. It's a typical clear the rats, kill the rats quest. Anyway. Yep. Okay. Continuing from the official chart of the Fighters Guild, quote unquote, any member of the Fighters Guild who strikes or steals from another member shall be expelled from the guild. Now, that's your first strike. Readmittance is at the direction of the guild stewards. Hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. You could yeah. actually get back in if you're a total douche. It's not a one and done like Dark Brotherhood. Kind That's nice. right. Continuing, the guild selects candidates who are strong and healthy. A candidate must have some proficiency with long blades, axes, blunt weapons, and shields. Guildsmen must be able to use and maintain heavy armor. Wow. The Guild has evolved into a very professional organization backed by the establishment of Tamriel as a whole to regulate the hiring and training of these mercenary forces to protect commerce, provide dignitary protection, 
and to drive away threats to the security and citizenry. Security of the citizenry. The first fun fact of this great lore lesson. The Fighters Guild can take on contracts from private citizens, providing the contract does not interfere or conflict with the laws or customs of the region from which it originated. Guild stewards will receive the contracts and dispense them to the guild members who are appropriate for the task or request. The guild stewards also process complaints about services and determine the eligibility of guild members requesting readmittance into the guild. Complaints. As we talked about, some members can be booted for stealing or assaulting other members. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a guild of fighters. Some of them might not have the best temperament. Yeah. Yeah. I could right. see you just dying. That's all I'm saying. You're not getting reinvited. They're just going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's more Dark Brotherhoody, but still. Mm. So we're going to dive a little bit into the true history of where the Fighters Guild was formed. Before it was formed, the land was in a state of chaos. Crime had skyrocketed, and bandits were everywhere. Crime in the cities was really left relatively unchecked. So the areas where this was happening most was... um, where Akaviri Daenerys Vess dwelled, suggested the creation of an order of warriors for hire to combat this lawless threat. The new guild, as we talked about, was called the Sifim at the time, was originally Akaviri only, but eventually it opened its doors to all races. We'll talk about why uh, in a little bit. Um, actually, we're going to talk about why right now. This was due to... The Akaviri, also known as the Teshi, not understanding the local geography and politics of all the new and foreign lands they were assigned to protect. So part of the problem was also was that they simply, there just was not enough Akaviri for the work that needed to be done because the the guild started to spread out into, Sifim started to spread out into all these different areas and not only did the Akaviri not know the history and the politics and the lands they were assigned, but also there was a shortage. So right. they needed more people. So native races in all the regions began to, to be recruited into the guild. So since that time, the guild has had a pretty steady rise in prominence in Tamriel, including assisting with the vanquishing of many threats, both domestic and beyond as in plain meld type threats. For example, in the Elder Scrolls Online, the joining the Fighters Guild opens up the quest line where the player assists the Mages Guild and the Three Alliances by invading the realm of Cold Harbor to thwart the advances of Molag Ball. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Okay, during the Third Era, so we're talking a little bit later here, under Emperor Uriel Septim I, the Fighters Guild was a very well-established and began to thrive in Skyrim and then later in several other locations throughout Iliac Bay. During the same time frame, however, the guild in Morrowind began to experience some pretty severe corruption, particularly in Vivek City, causing a loss of respect by many of the guilds um, or by many of the, uh, uh, the people living in the area. And the guild's future, at least in Morrowind, started to get questioned. 
So particularly with corruption in the upper ranks, the Dark Elves started to screw the pooch a little bit. By the fourth era, the Fighters Guild presence was severely lessened, especially in the various regions of Skyrim, where the Companions had become the primary mercenary group. The Companions, which you can join in Skyrim, became the Warrior uh, Guild in Skyrim and served a very similar function of the Fighters Guild. The Companions operated out of Yurvaskar, Mead Hall, and Whiterun. If you remember coming into Whiterun mm-hmm. for the first time, you may or may not be able to help a few of the uh, companions with uh, taking down a, a giant. Mm-hmm. And um, they kind of let you know what you need to do if you're interested in joining. So that becomes kind of the fighters guildy type guild in that area. Fun quest line. Yes. Fun fact on the history of the Companions, they were traced back from the 500 Companions, which, as you remember, was Isgrimoire's legendary army that waged war against the Snow Elves to avenge the infamous Knight of Tears. Covered that when we talked about the Nordy Nords. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So despite the history of the Fighters Guild and what becomes of it in later eras, it is said that everybody in Tamriel should owe a great debt of gratitude to the Fighters Guild because not only its members and the people have been helped by its neutral policy of offering strong arms for a fee within the boundaries of the law, many have also argued that without them, there would be no guilds of any kind and no model for the independent adventurer would exist. Eh, I don't know what Dark Brother would say about that. Well... They would probably just slice your throat. Oh, okay. Well. And watch you bleed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Fighters Guild and Elder Scrolls Online is led by a legendary Argonian by the name of Seize All Colors. Mm-hmm. The guild has been contracted by a very influential patron, a patron citizen to focus its forces entirely against Molag Ball and the destruction of the Dark Anchors arousing much controversy among the members. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of at the beginning stages of that quest line. I've been I know I said I haven't worked at the Thieves Guild, but I've really kind of gotten involved with the Fighters Guild, so at the beginning of that. Yep. So you still have the quest that says see sees all colors? Mm, probably. Yes. Yes. Okay, so joining the Fighters Guild in ESO, you can get some abilities. There's an entire skill line that goes uh, with this. The ultimate ability that you get is called Dawnbreaker. Very, very popular one, um, especially for like a PvP build. This is used very, pretty widely used. Uh, Dawnbreaker deals damage to targets in front of the player and does extra damage to Daedric and the Undead. There are some active abilities that you can choose. Silver Bolts, a ranged attack that deals physical damage, knocks down undead and daedric enemies, and a chance to banish undead and daedric for additional damage. Silver Shards is a morph ability that will hit two additional targets of Silver Bolts. Silver Leash is the other morph ability that will activate again to pull the enemy to you. Then there's a Circle of Protection. This creates an area of protection increasing armor and spell resistance, granting additional armor and resistance from Daedric and Undead enemies. You can tell who the Fighters Guild hates. The Daedric <laughs> and the Undead. 
Then there's Expert Hunter. This grants 20% chance to deal additional damage to Daedric and Undead enemies on hit. And killing Daedric or Undead increases the duration of Expert Hunter. Trap Beast, another very, very popular skill that is utilized in a lot of stamina builds. Creates a trap that deals magic damage and immobilizes the target. Undead and Daedra are, you guessed it, dealt additional fire damage. Passives. Here are the passives for the Fighter's Guild skill line. Intimidating Presence allows players to use the Intimidate option during conversations. Boring. That's your first rank. Slayer. That increases weapon and spell power when attacking undead and Daedric enemies. Banish the Wicked. You gain additional ultimate. Hmm, that could be good. When killing undead and Daedric enemies. Dolmans. Skill... Yes, for sure. Skill Tracker allows fighters guild abilities that affect undead and daedric enemies to also affect werewolves. Yeah. Pretty good for a werewolf build. Mm -hmm. Okay, Bounty Hunter allows players to accept bounty quests from the fighters guild in Cyrodiil, which are the dailies. And in order to join the fighters guild, you uh, have to travel to your major city in your alliance. For the Aldmeri Dominion, it's Vocal Guard in Auradon. For Ebonheart Pact, it's Davin's Watch in Stonefalls. And for the Daggerfall Covenant, it is, you guessed it, Daggerfall in Glenumbra. Welcome to the Bank of Daggerfall. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It's and so that, true. my friends, concludes the lesson on the Fighter's Guild. As you can tell, there's not a whole lot of out there. I mean, there, there is some more stuff you can kind of delve into about the origins of the Fighters Guild, but it kind of gets into the weeds a little bit. And my goal with these lore lessons is to enlighten you not to sing you a lullaby. Right. This week, the lore lesson number 25 is our 25th lore lesson. Woo! We are covering... The Dwemer. Yeah! Dwemer time, baby. Is it, wait, Dwemer or Dwemer? Oh, buddy, I'm going to cover that. It's both. Oh. At least according to the internet? UESP. I mean, it's on the internet, the so it's got to be true. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> we all believe the interwebs. I sure do. I mean, I take Wikipedia's gospel. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I need a swig of uh, I need a swig of ale here real quick. All right. That sounds mm -hmm. metallic. Is that metallic? Do you have one of your metal mugs? Yeah, it's Metallica. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm actually really excited about this one. It's a cool one. So Okay. The Dwemer. Also known as the Dwemer. You can say it both ways. I mean, because words can be a challenge <laughs> at times. Not name any names. Not naming any names, but Jibs <laughs> sucks at words, so this gives him some choices. He'll probably find a way to crap the bed, but I hope you we're going to give him two choices on how to say this one. All right. Also known as the people of the deep, the Dwemer are arguably the most iconically fabled race in the entire lore of Elder Scrolls and the entire series. I beg you to find something that proves me wrong on that one. Right? Right. Right. 
So Dwemer in itself means Deep Elves. And for as long as I can remember playing this series of games, the disappearance of this race from Tamriel in a flash has been incredibly debated by lorehounds, both expert and novice. Me, I'm the novice. So anyway, <laughs> I put this lore lesson together. It's been a long time in the making, but we are finally going to reveal the history and speculation behind this incredible Elder Scrolls race to all of our listeners. But there's one thing that I want you to keep in mind while you listen to this lesson. The history of the Dwemer is mostly speculation because their true story was not accurately recorded and can't be confirmed. And it's because of the way that they disappeared. And we will certainly get to that and bring some understanding as to why there is no concrete evidence. Hmm. There is a ton of information. So grab yourself a Rotmeth. Oh, gosh. That's or not. That's terrible. And enjoy. All right. So some of the most obvious stuff first. Actually, this part might not be that obvious, but we're going to talk about physical traits of the Dwemer first. Um, because there are some misconceptions. So despite popular belief, the Dwemer were not a small species of elves. And the only way that they know this or they could deduce this was that archaeological evidence proves that the armor worn by the Dwemer was actually the same size of a typical human, uh, human or an elf. So the first fun fact here. It's believed that the Dwemer attained the dwarf moniker a long time ago by the giants of the Velothi Mountains who would have undoubtedly considered the Dwemer to be unusually small. You know, for the longest time, I thought they were because of that. I always so did I because they're called dwarves. Yes, I thought there was legit dwarves, and this was before, like right when we were starting our show. I discovered it's not the case. Yeah, not the case. So they're not going to be the uh, quintessential dwarves when they come back because they will return. I sure they're not going to be so. the quintessential dwarves that you're going to see, like in. You know, a Tolkien novel. Gosh, I would love that, though. Oh, it would be so cool. Mm-hmm. Right, for sure. So, um, actually, the, actually, the Imperials went and excavated uh, a lot of the ancient Dwemer ruins. And it also supports the theory that the translation of the Dwemer as Deep Elves may have also been known as Smart Elves. So, it's the Imperial excavations think that it's kind of interchangeable. So deep elves may have also meant smart elves. And it certainly kind of rings true because of the things that they were capable um, and uh, the things that they did. So here's another fun fact. The Anuad is an early religious book of myth on the creation of Nern and beyond. So it mentioned that the Elnafe or the old gods had brilliant students said mentioned something about brilliant students and it speculated that these brilliant students were actually the earliest Dwemer before they split. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. Okay. There's a lot of like little things in here that lead to the under a little bit more understanding, but really doesn't quite prove it. So pretty much everything I say today is speculation based off of small amounts of evidence. Hmm. Okay. So, there's that. 
Okay, so to date, the only visual examples of Dwemer come from actual sculptures and dwarven specters, which are ghosts of ancient Dwemer, which can still be found haunting the halls of their ruins. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, physical skeletons or bodies. From these, but the, although these sources are very, very archaic, it can be gathered that the Dwemer looked similar to other elven races and that they preferred heavy armor and adorned themselves with long beards. And then their, their casters were, you know, their robe wearers. Right. But other, no other specific information actually exists. So it was either heavy or light, it seems, because that's the only evidence that they have. And then they all like to wear long beards, which I, you know, I just thought elves it had the capability of growing beards but like traditionally kind of not right yeah like in some games you play i mean this is going out of canon for other scrolls but in some other games you play you can't have like a thick beard for an elf no no very smooth skin smooth the smooth skins so let's talk about some of the stuff that we do know because there still is evidence that's able to be found. And this is the technology of the Dwemer. So by all accounts of the history available, it appears that the Dwemer were very highly technologically advanced and the other races of Tamriel had not yet uncovered the secrets behind their inventions, including the actual metal from which their, constru their constructs were constructed. Their focus appeared to be on creating quality materials first, then building the end product. So the Dwemer were able to master the use of steam and geothermal power by utilizing natural lava sources beneath Morrowind, where they, where they first kind of settled. Mm -hmm. And this allowed them to create incredibly advanced constructs such as airships. I was like, excuse me, what? But there is a game. I think we talked about that game. Oh, um, yeah. A couple uh, episodes ago. Yeah. Where there's an airship actually like stuck in the ice. Well, that was a Dwemer build. Mm -hmm. um, also, they can also make sentient machines, mechanical observatories, and lighting systems that can have continued to work for centuries without any maintenance. I love that. Yeah. Like, really pretty cool, the stuff that they make that, that's still working. Yeah. They also created a defense system, which I know you guys have run into, in many of their underground cities, factories, and strongholds that are still functional today. Okay, this is a very difficult word. Anamunsuli. 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 Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Enchanted <laughs> mechanical guardians or centurions and spheres. Mm-hmm still inhabit these areas and appear to be power-linked to their place of origin, losing power if they are removed. So a lot of these things, and some of the quests that you do, you have to find power sources for these things because they've been removed from their home. So there is a lot of speculation that these constructs that defend these old Dwemer ruins or old Dwemer factories that are still in use the constructs that defend them will lose their power if they're taken too far away from their place of origin. Oh. And they basically become useless. Huh. Right. So these artificial constructs are believed to have a very strong connection to magic and an incredibly advanced artificial intelligence as well, with the ability to sense the intentions of those around them, including the ability to react accordingly. Cool, huh? No kidding. 
it's funny because my intentions when I go into the you know, when I go into most of those places is really to find to steal some of their cool stuff. Yeah, and I always end up getting attacked. <laughs> they don't. So want maybe to they see can it. sense that I want to steal their crap. It's so cool, man. That tech is so cool. That, that's the part that makes me wish that they could somehow bring them back and have that whole aspect of them because it's so incredibly unique. Yes, and I think that there is so much of an open door. We can talk about it after I go through the whole lore lesson, but yeah, I think there's yeah. so much of an open door for them to be brought back. Okay. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. yeah. Fun fact. The Dwemer appeared to have had an, extensi- an extensive knowledge of the arcane and possessed the ability to imbue their creations with its power. They even kept an Elder Scroll within their massive underground fortress at Blackreach in the region of Skyrim. They had their very own Elder Scroll. Mm. The Elder Scroll is mine! <laughs> okay. Had to, Keep tension it. breaker, had to be done. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Architecture. This is kind of short, but here's the, uh, just a little blip about uh, Dwemer architecture. They found refuge in their constructed strongholds where they lived in colonies or city-states. The areas that they built were forged underground or into mountains and were constructed of very well-calculated and mostly angular design. They they preferred like um, boxy, straight edges because it was so so much more precise than um, like a sphere or something rounded. They preferred just angular design. Um, they were laden, these areas that they constructed were laden with steam-powered contraptions, many of which still operate today. Mm-hmm. Um, similar steam boilers that would run these colonies and city-states can be found in much, much smaller um, forms in their constructed centurions, which are believed to be powered by the stronghold's infrastructure itself, however not confirmed. And that's part of the uh, thing that I was talking about just a few minutes ago when... Uh, these constructs are taken away. They believe the power source is somewhere within their area of origin as opposed to within themselves. That's why they lose power. Right. Okay. Let's dive into history. This is this is pretty thick. The history. I like this so much. I'm this excited. is a really fun lore lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The race of elves native to the lands of Dwemereth which is really modern-day Morrowind, were referred to by men as dwarves. Though much of their origin history is not known, they are one of the most interesting races of them all. Speculation was that they split from ancient Aldmer, and that took place sometime during the earliest years of Tamriel's history. So we're talking Merithic and, and before. Mm-hmm. Although there's no actual evidence of this, many scholars believe that um, they originated from ancient Aldmer due to many similarities in Dwemer's societal rules. So it's kind of taken as they they originated from Aldmer, um, although not confirmed. That's just the same. Although not confirmed, everybody pretty much knows they came from the ancient Aldmer. Right. The Dwemer were believed to be so incredibly intelligent, industrious, and fearless, and in many cases, cruel, because they were trying to protect and put forth these thoughts. They were so much further advanced from other people that they just, 
they didn't put up with it. You know what I mean? Just like, okay, whatever. Zero tolerance. You guys are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were a society of very reclusive inventors, uh, very much free thinkers, and they were hopelessly dedicated to the study and furtherance of science, engineering, and the arcane, all three in one, which is what makes them so unique and special. When we study the true history of their race, most of the information that you uncover reflects on their conflicts with other races from within their own society. Tons of internal struggle happening with the Dwemer. From the beginning of their speculated arrival on Morrowind during the Merithic, the Dwemer settled along the coastline and founded their new home, which they called Dwemereth. The Dwemer begun their first clash in the region with the with the uh, chimer over land resources and religion. Um, so the chimer, you know, are the early Dunmer, right? Obviously native to Morrowind. And then the Dwemer show up and they're just like, what? You guys are wrong. You guys are stupid. <laughs> and now they get into this head bashing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the chimers, we know it were very devout followers of the Daedra. And this did not set well with the Dwemer. So they battle with the chimer for years until a common enemy brought the two warring entities together. Do you remember what that common enemy is? Uh, what's his name? Shaw's Bones. Vikings? Or the Vikings? The Gosh. freaking Vikings! Norse? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Man, I've been balls deep in East March lately, and that's all I've been thinking about the Vikings. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was the Vikings. Yeah. Yep, is the Nords. You're right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not even mad at you. In the early part of the First Era, the Nordic invasion under High King Vrage in the province of Morrowind brought the Dwemer and the Chimer together as a unified front to repel the invasion of the men from the north, the Vikings. You shut your mouth. In the first era, year 416, the Alliance ultimately defeated the Nordic invaders, leading to the first council headed by leaders of both Dwemer and Chimer society in the region that they coined Resident. So they kind of called the entire area Resident and um, combined forces, basically, to lead. But they were still so different. There was still a problem there because they had so many fundamental differences and it would boil to a head pretty quickly. Right. So because of the alliance of the joining of the two cultures, a few Dwemer clans rebelled because of the longstanding conflict with the Chimer. One such clan was known as Rorkin. They chose to self-exile and they led their clan to the region now known as Hammerfell. Uh, Hammerfell was originally known as Volenfell. So that's how the Dwemer ended up in Hammerfell as well. Another such defiant Dwemer clan known as Clan Cragen followed Rorkin's cue and migrated to the west and then reestablished themselves in Skyrim. So, you know, now you have Dwemer kind of spread out all over the place and weren't just in one area. Conflicts in Skyrim with um, with Rorkins, the Rorkin Dwemer, 
with Nordic inhabitants led to further Dwemer spread into the West. So they just started hitting more conflicts with the Nords and they just continued to move the West. But the problem is that spread them out. Um, so it increased the amount of Dwemeri settlements from the areas of Markarth all the way to the Reach. But they started to spread out. And then every one of these settlements chose to bury their cities deep within their respective mountains um, in order to conceal their numbers. But during their delve into the mountains of Skyrim, the Dwemer eventually discovered Ethereum. And this is a very, very important point. The Dwemer eventually discovered Ethereum. This is an incredibly rare, luminescent blue crystal with very, very strong magical powers. The crystal, which had to be extensively researched by the Dwemer in order to actually harvest and use it, was thought to have a strong connection to the meteoric glass that fell to Nern during the time of the aliens. Wow. Yeah. So they're thinking it was the same stuff. Hmm. So eventually, control of the precious crystals harvesting and use became the basis for a brutal split between all of the Dwemer city-states. So here's more of that internal warring. The split actually weakened the alliance between the Dwemer clans in the region, in Skyrim, and allowed the Nords to move back in under High King Gellir. So they were able, the Nords were able to move back in because of this, this split, an internal struggle, um, struggle by the Dwemer, and they were able to gain a foothold over the Dwemer in Skyrim. Hmm. Yes, so as if this devastating conflict between the Dwemer alliance wasn't enough, the Dwemer in Skyrim also created their, an additional problem. It's actually turned into a freaking crisis by tricking the fleeing snow elves to live among them. So remember when we talked about this one, the snow elves were under attack by the Nords. They were kind of going back and forth in their own struggle. Right. Um, they were in, in a losing conflict with the Nords of Skyrim, basically. The snow elves that did survive, though, the onslaught by um, the Nordic king Harald, were forced into the wilderness and eventually found sanctuary with the Dwemer, but it was for a price. Fun fact. Hmm. The Dwemer provided safe haven for the snow elves that were fleeing for their lives from the Nords. But they were tricked into consuming a toxic fungi that rendered them blind, allowing the Dwemer to force them into slavery because their population was so weakened. Mm -hmm. And eventually the snow elves devolved into the corrupt elves known as the Falmer. Remember that? Yes, sir. Yes. So the Dwemer, very smart, very sneaky, very cruel. In many ways, very corrupt. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the enslaved snow elves, the Falmer, eventually rebelled against the Dwemer in the war, something was called the War of the Crag. And it's a brutal conflict that took place under the surface of Skyrim for several decades without the Nords on the surface even knowing it was taking place. Wow. So the war ended with the mysterious and sudden disappearance of the Dwemer. That's like the dun-dun-dun moment, right? Right. Okay. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. What in the holy hell happened to the Dwemer? Are you, Any guesses? Are you, oh, you're asking. Uh, <laughs> mm, 
something related to one of the divines, maybe? I don't know. The three. The Vikings came and stole them. The Vikings came and stole them. You're a douche. They did. You're a douche. <laughs> okay. Something happened to the mysteriously clandestine race of elves uh, around first era year 700. They completely vanished, but nobody truly knows what happened. And the disappearance of the Dwemer, as we talked about, is probably the most debated topic in the history of Tamriel and the Elder Scrolls universe as a whole. For reasons unknown, the Dwemer suddenly disappeared during the Battle of Red Mountain. The Battle of Red Mountain was the final conflict between General uh, Nerevar's Chimer and the Dwemer. The accounts of what actually transpired during the Dwemer's disappearance are so conflicting that there is zero concrete evidence today. It's speculated that the Dwemer had discovered the Heart of Lorcan. So the Heart of Lorcan is a powerful ancient relic and was known as the divine spark of the deity of the same name. So it's the divine, basically the divine spark of Lorcan. And remember, Lorcan was the trickster god. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was held beneath Red Mountain. Well, in order to harness the power of the relic that they had found, the Dwemer chief tonal architect by the name of Kagernak constructed a, a legendary set of tools known as Kagernak's Tools. It consisted of three different tools. First was a tool called Sunder. This was a hammer that was used to produce a specific amount and quality of power from the heart of Lorcan. Then there was the Keening. This was a short blade used to flay and focus the power that Sunder produced. And then there was a Wraith Guard. This was actually a gauntlet that was worn by, by the constructor to stop the fatal effects of the other tools, Sunder and Keening, on the wielder. So it's actually like a big, giant gauntlet that would be worn while they were working with Sunder and Keening on extracting what they needed to out of the heart of Lorcan. However, this process was interrupted, seemingly, speculatory. This process was interrupted when the Chimer were made aware of the Dwemer's attempt to harness the power of the Heart of Lorcan, and they considered this a blasphemous act, and they vowed to stop the attempt. So at this point, it's unknown what Kagernak's ultimate goal was. It's speculated that he sought to elevate the Anumidium. The Anumidium was a giant golem made of brass, it was speculated that he sought to elevate the Anumidium to be a new god of the Dwemer powered by the heart of Lorcan. So the Anumidium, if activated, was to be a weapon of devastating power that they most likely would have used against the, the Chimer. However, before the Anumidium could be activated, the entirety of the Dwemer race disappeared in an instant. It appears that all members of the race were actually just erased from the world as we know it. So here's a testament to that fact. And some of the only evidence they have. When the untouched untouched Dwemer ruins at Bam's Amshend, which is basically Mournhold, was discovered, numerous piles of ash were present next to weapons and armor, in chairs, in beds, 
This suggested that the Dwemers' bodies simply and suddenly just reduced to ash in an instant. So it's believed that the very controversial use of Kagernak's tools by Kagernak himself sparked an instantaneous, spontaneous combustion of every Dwemer on the face of Nern. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought that's what I would get out of you, is a wow. But yeah, pretty gnarly. Yeah. Second theory. The second theory holds that it wasn't the use of Kagernak's tools to create the to create a new god that doomed the Dwemer. However, it was the blatant misuse of the laws of nature in seeking to create the profane by commanding the sacred earth bones. So they're thinking basically they were commanding the earth bones and basically betraying the laws of nature in order to seek the profane, which they, you know, the profane they consider uh, making a new God. So basically they pissed off the old gods right? is what they're saying. Other theories hold that the Adra and the Daedra were insulted by the Dwemers religious skepticism of them. And they somehow played a part in the disappearance or another theory that the Dwemer became frightened of Azura's uncontrollable nature and simply abandoned their own culture and blended in with the Altmer and, and uh, Chimer cultures. So the last theory, if they actually did that, which I highly doubt that they just, oh, all of a sudden we're afraid of everything, and then they just abandoned everything and left. And That doesn't seem like them, just based off this lesson. No, not at all. But it is a theory. Um but this last theory would suggest the Dwemer are still among the population today. They're just under a completely different identity. Doesn't really make sense to me. Uh-uh. I think the very first one that um, they were instantaneous, like, like instantaneously, spontaneously combusted, I guess. That seems the most likely. I mean, an incredible feat, but that seems the most likely. So. You know that there's since there's various parts of uh, Nern that we have never been to in the ESO timeline. Could always just be that they were transported to another area of Nern. Could be something to think about. But how do you explain the ash in one of those ruins? I mean, did they find the same ash in the other ruins? I don't know. See, I don't. I don't know. Could have been the residue yeah. was left behind. I don't know. I know. That's what makes this whole thing such a mystery. So whatever you choose to believe, the sudden disappearance of the Dwemer is, in fact, the largest mystery to plague Tamriel. And until we actually have more information, the population of Tamriel and the adventurers that roam the land will never truly know what the um, answer to the mystery is. But I believe that it is out there and it will, maybe not soon, but it will be discovered eventually in the lore with something written in either the return of the Dwemer, either the explanation of exactly what happened to them. Um, I really hope for the return of the Dwemer. I think it would be unbelievable if there's still a colony that exists mm. that did not die. Right. Um, but until then, we speculate, we wait. I would love that so much. I was thinking the other day, 
ESO, man, one thing that we obviously believe it needs the Necromancer class, but man, how cool would it be to have that aspect of gameplay that's more mechanical? You know what I mean? That's more gadgety feel to it in a Dude. in a world of Tamriel. I mean, just I know I know that this is a is way out there, but could you imagine new race, the Dwemer? Okay, something happens, the Dwemer return. Uh-huh. Like the next expansion, not chapter. I'm talking the next full expansion. Uh-huh. It gets written into the lore. This is such a pipe dream. Gets written into the lore. The The return of the Dwemer. What actually happened to them? This is what happened. There's all new lore written. We get a new race, the Dwemer, and a new class, the Engineer. Oh my gosh. Shut up. Cheers. Oh my gosh, that that would be that would be awesome. <laughs> oh my god, that'd be so cool. That would be awesome. That that yep. would just, <sighs> yeah, yep. A construct pet. Oh, stop it! You stop it. <laughs> that'd be so awesome. I mean, because I've always been fascinated with him ever since Morrowind. When I first yeah. saw, I, I will never forget when I first saw a Dwemer ruin, and I'm like, "What the heck is that?" It was so ominous looking. It was so just out of the ordinary, and it made me just I I I fell in love, and I fell in love with the idea of the Dwemer. And since then, I've just been waiting, just wondering and waiting, watching, hoping. Yeah. Yeah, and there's probably oh, lore hounds out there that know so much more about this stuff, you know, than we do, and they're probably going, "These guys are total douches." <laughs> Man, that'd be so kind anyway, of harsh if, if you're out there. <laughs> if you're out there and you're thinking that, then my response to you is, "Hi, howdy ho." Well, all I got to say is, hands down, my favorite lore lesson, and it's so fitting because it's the 25th lore lesson. Well done. Right. Well, thanks, done. buddy. I really wanted that to be a surprise for you because I know that you were uh, you're looking for it. And the whole time I was talking to you yesterday while I was writing it, I had a hard time keeping my mouth shut. Well, you did a really good job because I, I mean, I like did, we were talking did. beforehand, I'm like, you know, all right, so we're doing flora and fauna. How am I going to spin this into marketing for the episode? Okay, I can do this. <laughs> how I am I going to spin this? How am I going to spin it into something that sounds interesting? <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did good. You did real good, kid. This week, we are going to talk a little bit more about the Dwemer and their sudden and mysterious disappearance from the face of Nern, because woven into their mystery is the Heart of Lorcan, which we all know has a mystique of all of its own. We talked about why the Dwemer disappeared, or at least the speculation as to why they disappeared, and we believe it is completely tied to the Heart of Lorcan. So today, we're going to talk about the story of this most prized relic in Tamriel, which is responsible for a great deal of speculation, even though the corruption of many men and myrrh in Tamriel have taken place because of it. Mm-hmm. So the Heart of Lorcan, what is it? If you're base level, don't know what it is, the Heart of Lorcan is the divine spark of the deity most commonly known as Lorcan. Lorcan is known as the missing god and the creator or trickster present in ancient Tamrielic myth. 
More importantly, he's known as the spirit of Nern and the god of all mortals. So this very same deity is worshipped in many different cultural uh, races of Tamriel, although the, they're, they all kind of have a slight variation of his name. So here's some examples. And we covered this, you know, pretty much with all of these different races when we talked about our races and lore lessons. But he's also known by the Khajiit of elsewhere as Lor Kaj, the moon beast. Same guy. He is known by the Yokudin Regatta or Redguard as the Sep in Hammerfell. And the Bretons know Lorcan as Sheor of High Rock. Yeah. The Nords, or the Vikings, uh, if you're telling the story in your jibs, is known as Shore in Skyrim. <laughs> I just caught what you said. You're such a oh, what? What happened? You know that how was many a topic messages of conversation. Yeah. yeah, a lot. You know, you know how many we got? A lot. Honest mistake. The Vikings? Yep, it's the Vikings. Dur -dur. Yep, And they're led by Ragnar Lothbrook. Of now you're just being a dude. Skyrim. <laughs> okay. He's also, Lorcan is also known as Shazar in Cyrodiil, which is um, the center of the Nibbanese uh, religion. Okay. Fun fact. Many of these different races that I just covered hold very, very different views of the events surrounding the death of Lorcan and how his heart became adorned on the face of Nern. And we will, we're going to kind of talk about some of the most or the most popular and the most believed reason for the death of Lorcan and how his heart became such an iconic tool, I guess you could call it. So either by convincing or trickery of the Etadah. Now, when I say the Etadah, et, I mean the original spirits. These are the spirits that were part in the making of Nern itself. Lorcan brought about the creation of Mundus, and as a result, the land of Tamriel. Sometime after the materialization of the world, the most shared legend holds that Lorcan was either killed, mutilated, or otherwise separated from his divine spark or the heart of Lorcan. His heart was removed from his being. That sounds painful. And this event, yeah, it sounds gnarly. This event was known as the Shattering of Lorcan. So whether or not this transpired as a form of punishment or it was voluntary is still kind of speculated. Lorcan was, exi was exiled to wander through creation, the mortal creation. So here's uh, one of the concepts around this theory. It's called the Theory of Lunar Lorcan. And this theory states that the two moons of Masser and Secunda, who we know are very highly revered by the Khajiit, the two moons have manifested as Lorcan's flesh divinity, and the moon duo are said to literally be his corpse. Hanging in the sky, Lorcan's corpse are the two moons, Master and Secunda. Okay. Yes. It sounds like some wacky Kajiti theory, but. Sounds it's like something came up with on Moon Sugar. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well played. So this theory states that Lorcan himself was once a plane or a planet that participated in the creation of Mundus and that his divine spark or his heart fell to Nern, I liked this part, to impregnate Nern with the measure of its existence and a reasonable amount of selfishness. That's how they 
some beings felt about Lorcan. Hmm. The two moons are said to represent a duality or a sense of dichotomy that has been paramount to the dialogue of Lorcan. So when people talk about Lorcan, there's kind of two ways they talk about it. Was he good? Was he bad? Was he an evil trickster? Was he a creationist? Those two things are always talked about. Henceforth, the sense of dichotomy. Right. So that very same dichotomy presents itself as the very differences in opinion on Lorcan as held by men and elves. As the ultimate divine trickster, he was almost always loathed as an enemy in elven legend, but on the contrary, revered by the likes of mankind. So the elves held that Lorcan was unholy due to their belief that he severed their very connection to the spiritual plane with his trickery. The elves, just remember, the elves' ultimate goal, their ultimate wish was to return to their pedestal among the spirit realm. But now it's impossible because this demon, Lorcan, hindered their way. So in their folklore, they talk of him as being a demon hmm. and not good. So you ask yourself, how did this whole thing happen? Well, what actually ended up happening with Lorcan, the major lore behind him is this. The Etada, or the original spirits, as we talked about, um, some refer to them like the elves refer to them as the Adrian Daedra. Um, the Nords, or the men of Tamriel, refer to the Etada as the gods of Tamriel. And according to the historical lore in the Dawn and Merithic eras, the Etadar, or these original spirits, created the Adamantine Tower, which we've also talked about recently, was later known as the Dereni Tower, the White Gold Tower, same place. Mm -hmm. This was known as a place to convene and discuss the creation of Mundus. So the original spirits created this tower to talk about the creation of Mundus. This location was also later used by the very same gods to discuss the punishment of Lorcan for his trickery of conceptualizing Mundus. The decision was made at some point during those meetings to cast Lorcan's heart from the top of the tower into the mortal world below. And the people who were responsible for doing this was Oriel and Trinimac. Lorcan was said to have been slain by Oriel and Trinimac. Actually, if you look at um, elven lore, it is said that Trinimac himself tore out Lorcan's heart from his chest. And when he did so, the heart literally laughed at him and refused to die. That is gnarly crap right there. Ugh, no kidding. So as a, as a result of the heart literally laughing... And um, refusing to die, Oriel secured the heart to an arrow and shot it across the world into the sea for it to forever be lost in the mortal realm. Now, I have a little uh, reading here from the Monomyth. This is a lore book that you can find. It reads, but when Trinimac and Oriel tried to destroy the heart of Lorcan, it laughed at them. It said, this heart is the heart of the world. For one was made to satisfy the other. So Oriel fastened the thing to an arrow and let it fly long into the sea where no aspect of the new world may ever find it. 
Yes. So, unbeknownst to them, at the writing of the monomyth, somebody found it. <laughs> and who was it? It was our friend, the Dwemer. In the early part of the first era, the Dwemer, uh, some Dwemer miners were said to have discovered a mysterious magical stone underneath Red Mountain in Morrowind. Kagranak, who was a Dwemer, which we talked about last week, determined that the stone was actually the heart of Lorcan. As we spoke of this in the lore lesson last week, Kagranak fashioned a set of tools to harness the power locked within Lorcan's heart. Now, Kagranak's goal was to take the powers from within the heart of Lorcan and create a new god from the Animidium in the form of a massive brass golem that was simply referred to as the Numidium. So he wanted to take this power from Lorcan's heart and create a new god for the Dwemer. Now it's speculated that the heart rebelled from Kagranak's attempt to harvest this power. Remember, Kagranak made those tools. And when he tried, this is, this is speculation, when Kagranak tried to harvest the power from Lorcan's heart, it instantaneously wiped the entire drummer race from the face of Nern. That is one pissed off heart. You know, fast forward a week from when we first talked about, you know, pretty much that last part of the same thing with how the Dwemer disappeared. Isn't it funny that they just chose that race that it wasn't, the environment was infected, uh, affected. There wasn't any kind of explosion, you know, that people saw. It was just they disappeared. Yeah, seemingly because of their own greed. Yeah. And, and their own, their own want to be superior beings yep because at the time they were they were in a battle right and they wanted to use this to excel yep and it backfired okay another quick reading from a book called Cavernax tools it reads beneath the red mountain dwemer miners discovered a great magical stone by diverse methods, Lord Kagranak, high priest and mage crafter of the ancient Dwemer, determined that this magical stones that this magical stone was the heart of Lorcan, cast here in the Dawn Era as a punishment for his mischief in creating the mortal world. Mm-hmm. Fun fact: some Nordic stories foretell that the Dwemer would die by Lorcan's hand, and were said to have been spread just before their actual disappearance. So there you go, Jibs. The Vikings foretold the future. Hmm. Did they? No, the Nords did. Oh, okay. Thanks. Because I wasn't clear the first time. Oh. Well, at least now we've reinforced the fact. (laughs) Okay. So whatever your personal beliefs may be, the mystery of the Heart of Lorcan is incredibly intricate tale of myth and legend. It is still talked about and debated today. And in this world where magical relics are strewn about every dark corner and awaiting discovery, it's magical in itself to imagine the amount of raw power that one relic could hold. That was a loaded lore lesson. Gives you a lot to think about. A lot of facts. It's 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 one of the short one of our shorter ones, but it is a good it's one meaty. in that. But it's a good one in that it tells. It tells a very jaded history. Yeah. 
of some things that are uh, it, it leads to a lot of other plots. Yeah, agreed. In the world of Tamriel, a ton, the world of Nern. Yeah, on Tamriel. And that's yeah, I agree. It was, it's um, that lore lesson carries a lot of weight with it. You know, it's not like it. It's hundreds of pages long, but it, it's it carry like there's so much that. <laughs> that references the heart of Lorcan. Oh, it, and you know what too? It can be. When you look at the history of the Dwemer alone and when you look at the history of the God of Lorcan, there is so much more to it. Like this is hitting probably I don't know, maybe maybe mid iceberg. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. But there is a lot more yeah. history to it. It just right. I you know, I can't add it all in. Oh yeah, that'd be crazy for the show, because yeah. yeah, it would it would go on forever. But if you are interested in more, I definitely recommend um, the Imperial Library for one, and the UESP, and in some respects, the Wiki. Most of them all have much of the same information, but there's a little bit of uh, variation from right. one to the next. All right, Fantastic. my friends. We're going to talk about something that can be kind of confusing to everybody, but it'll pop up in lore books and it pops up in different things that we do when the date is mentioned in Tamriel. So we're going to talk about the Tamriel calendar in Lore Lesson 27, which is going to dispel some of the confusion because it can be a little confusing, but the basic framework of the Tamriel calendar is something that you're most likely very familiar with. And the reason being is because there is some definite parallels between our, the Tamriel calendar and then um, our own Gregorian calendar that we use in the real world. Right. If you want to call it that. But anyway, Gregorian calendar is the most widely used civil calendar in the modern world. And the Elder Scrolls calendar has very similar traits so there are some slight little differences um from elder scrolls game to elder scrolls game i don't know if that was planned that way or if it was more of like a whoops type thing and it just has to do with like <laughs> days of the month you know like oops you know there's 30 in that month or 31 in this month but if they're minor changes and they're, they're not going to break your game so i wouldn't even worry about those i'm actually not even going to cover right. them so anyway uh, in the Tamrielic calendar, there are how many months, Jibs? Twelve. Oh my gosh, what a coincidence. Holy I'm so crap. used to it already. So January is known as Morningstar. The first month of the year, this is considered to be a winter month by Tamrielic sta uh, standards. And Morningstar is the season of the ritual. And as you all know, the ritual is one of the 13 constellations existing in the Arbus, which is also known as the universe in Elder Scrolls lore. Hmm. Sun's Dawn, the reciprocal of Sun's Dawn in our world is February, the second of the 12 months, also considered a winter month. Sun's Dawn is the season of the lover, February, Valentine's Day, the lover, it all kind of makes sense, my friends. Yay. Yay. Okay, first seed. The reciprocal of the third of 12 months is March. 
This is considered to be a spring month, and first seed is the season of the Lord. Yay. I sang. Did I sing that? Victory, my Lord. Yeah. I sang that. Okay. Rain's hand, the fourth of the 12-month cycle, is reciprocated as April in our world, and this is considered to be a spring month also. Rain's hand is the season of the mage. Ooh, the mage. The uh, fifth of 12 Tamrielic months is our reciprocal for May, which is called second seed in Tamriel. This is also considered to be a spring month. And the second seed is the season of the shadow. Fun fact. I, I think that's that... when the show started. No, oh, wait, it was yeah. March. It was March. Sorry. March, yeah. I wonder, when's Groundhog Day? I wonder uh, if this has to do with Groundhog Day. I don't know. That's a good point. Okay. I don't know. Maybe we'll check it out. Do you have a little Khajiit on your lap? Dude, I've got this new kitten. I'm sorry, folks. I've got this new oh, kitten. Oh, she's so sweet. And she's literally requiring me to rock her to sleep while we do this show. She will not. She's she's discovered Daddy's podcast studio and is now literally requiring me to rock her to sleep so she will stop meowing. So sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, dude. I slurped that up. I love that. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So the sixth of 12 months, our reciprocal in our world is June, also considered to be a summer month, is mid-year. This is the season of the steed in Tamriel, and it also coincides with mid-year mayhem. Which we will talk about. That was such a fun event. Yeah. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Okay, July is reciprocated in Tamriel, um, Tamrielic months as sun's height, which makes plenty of sense. Um, this is the seventh of 12 months, considered to be a summer month. Sun's height. Get it? The sun is the highest. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Sun's height is the season of the apprentice. Last seed, which is reciprocated as August in our world... This is the 8th of 12 months, considered to be a summer month. And the last seed is the season of the warrior. Hearthfire, which is our September, is the 9th of 12 months and considered to be a fall month. Thank you very much. This is the month we're in now and I'm ready for the fall. Heartfire. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Um... But yeah, Heartfire is the season of the lady. I don't know what that means. This is my birth month. Well, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, you're a lady. Yeah. (laughs) I have no comeback for that. (laughs) Frostfall is reciprocated as October in our Gregorian calendar. This is the 10th of 12 months in Tamriel, considered to be a fall month. Frostfall is the season of the tower. Then there's November, which is reciprocated as Sun's Dusk in Tamriel, the 11th of 12 months, considered to be a fall month. Sun's Dusk is a season of the Atronach. And last, but certainly not least, before we get into some fun facts and some holidays, Evening Star is our December. The final of 12 months in the Elder Scrolls universe, Evening Star is considered to be a winter month and is the season of the thief. Do not steal the New Life Festival presents, please. 
Isn't that funny? The season of the thief is also the season that, you know, about giving. Well, yeah, people go out and they heist other people's crap and then they give it as Christmas presents. I mean, that's how you're going to get your Christmas present. I'm going to steal it. You're going to steal it? Yeah. Are we going to do a uh, white elephant in our guild? Uh, We could. Do you know what that is? I know exactly what it is. So if you organize it, yeah, you got it. No problem. Oh, okay. Add more stuff to my table. Oh, okay, cool. No, of course we can. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Another little idea for uh, your guilds out there, all the various guilds, try a white elephant uh, gift exchange. It's actually kind of fun. You can do it all via mail in-game. I think I've ever done that in MMO before. Yep. I have a fun fact for you. We mentioned the Arbus. The Arbus is the name for the universe in Elder Scrolls lore. So the Arbus includes Mundus, Oblivion, the Void, and Aetherius. Mundus, if you remember from our our very first lore lesson, is the plane or realm of existence that encompasses Nern. It encompasses Nern, its moons, and then the Adric planets. Mundus is surrounded by Oblivion, and then Oblivion is surrounded by Aetherius. And we'll talk about kind of each one of those, because these all play into the Tamrielic calendar and the months. Let's talk a little bit about the days of the week. I'm sure you've seen these before, but in the Tamrielic calendar, the days usually start on Sundas, which is Sunday. Very Sunday, good. Sunday, you guys are Sunday. so smart. You guys are so smart. <laughs> After Sunday is Mondas, which is Monday. Mm-hmm. And the next is... One of two days that make me laugh every time I hear it. Tuesday is known as Turdas. But this is a T-I-R-D-A-S. Uh-huh. Then the middle of the week, wouldn't you know it, Wednesday is known as Middas. Yeah. The second day that makes me laugh every time I hear it is Thursday. It's also Turdas. But with a U. T-U-R-D-A-S. Turd. So at least two days of the week are filled with turds. <laughs> then we have Fridas, which is Friday, and then the day is ca- or the week is capped off with my favorite Saturday, also known as Lordas. See, the lore is never forgotten. It's always there. It's a part of your week every week. You may ask yourself, Cash, how are the Tamrielic dates written? And the answer is going to be presented now. The dates in the Elder Scrolls universe are written as follows, my friend. I know we've already talked about this before, but we're going to cover it again. So it goes the day, the date day of the month. So like the number and then the era and then the year. For for instance, of course, I would choose Turdos. The first of mid-year. Second era, year 210. So in some of our lore stuff that we that we cover, and then in a lot of the books that are out there, especially if it's a journal-type format, you will see the dates covered this way. Or when you're playing Skyrim and um, you go to 
like fast forward time or stop time or do whatever, sleep, it always tells you the date. It's in that format right there. Turdos, first of mid-year, second era, year 210. Right. Okay. Got a few fun facts for you. First one, oblivion is a term that is used to describe one plane of existence in Elder Scrolls lore. Oblivion is the plane that is inhabited by the Daedra. And yeah, these are kind of review for my lore lesson scholars out there. Okay, another fun fact. The Void is considered a cosmic realm of absolute nothingness. It is the domain of Sithis and where the Daedra spawn before being cast into Oblivion. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, that one's kind of a cool fun fact. Okay, once again, another fun fact here. Aetherius, which we have already talked about, is known as the Immortal Plane, the realm where Aedra, such as the Eight or Nine, depending on your beliefs, divines originate. So Aetherius is the source of all magic and creation in Mundus. Aetherius is considered to be the complete inverse or opposite of Oblivion. So Aetherius is the complete opposite of Oblivion. Aetherius is the immortal plane where the Aedra or the, or the divines originate and Oblivion is where the Daedra, not my ancestors, originate. Okay. Let's talk about some holidays in Tamriel. There are more holidays in Tamriel than you probably believe. So I'm going to cover some of the main ones and some of the more interesting ones, but there's a crap ton of them. Okay, so for Morningstar, the first of Morningstar is the New Life Festival, which is our Christmas festival, basically. It's a celebration of the new year, and it is, it is known by having increased taxes. So the emperors will increase the taxes, but at the same time, free beer is a staple on this holiday. And if you celebrate it in Elder Scrolls Online... This comes out. So when I read it, I was like, you got to be kidding me. There's freaking free beer. Um, nice. And my thought was the taxes, the increased taxes most likely pay for the beer. So it kind of all washes out. See, the emperors are brilliant. Just the way they do business. I know what's yep. up. The 16th of Morningstar is the Day of Lights. This is a holiday celebrated in Hammerfell as a prayer for good harvest and good fishing for the upcoming year. Sun's Dawn. The 2nd of Sun's Dawn is Mad Pelagius Day. This is a Breton holiday held to mock the honor of the most eccentric and deemed mad emperor of the Septim dynasty, Pelagius Septim III. An entire holiday devoted to making fun of somebody. Kind of freaking hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, the 16th of Sun's Dawn is called Heart's Day. This is not any different than our own Valentine's Day. It's celebrated in Tamriel in honor of the lovers, Polydor and Eloisa. The inns of all in all of Tamriel offer a free room to visitors. Yeah, interesting. This it. is also the summoning day of Sanguine, the prince of debauchery. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Particularly in Iliac Bay, parents cover your children's ears. In Iliac Bay, this day is celebrated with orgies. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thought Elder Scrolls Online was PG-13. Uh-uh, sucker. Wow. Did not yeah. see that coming. 
Neither did I, but it's in the show notes, and I read everything on the teleprompter. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> okay, first seed, the month of first seed. The seventh of first seed is the first planting. That is a holiday celebrating the time to set aside past differences and begin anew. Kind of random. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, the bit. 26th of first seed, the Festival of Blades. You're going to like this, Jibs. This is held in the Alakir Desert to celebrate the victory of the Red Guard over a race of giant goblins. But the goblins were considered a myth by most scholars. Wow. Yeah, they never really happened, Mr. and Mrs. Red Guard. But I would never say that to their face. Oh, that's how you die. That is how you die. Okay. Rain's Hand, the month of Rain's Hand. The 13th of Rain's Hand is the Day of the Dead which is a Breton holiday celebrating Breton religion and ancestral worship. Hmm. The, the Day of the Dead, obviously, is um, kind of a replicant of the Mexican Day of the Dead in our mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. which is a freaking awesome holiday. It is 100%. That's, yes. I just watched James Bond the other day, and then we're celebrating. It was pretty, pretty That's cool. right. I remember that scene. Okay, the 28th of Rain's Hand, this is Jester's Day, which we all know and love. This is celebrated all throughout Tamriel, where pranks are played across every city. This holiday, although it's in a different month, may be reminiscent of our own April Fool's Day. Mm -hmm. Then there is uh, the month of Second Seed. On the 1st of Second Seed, the rite of Vigild is practiced by the Sigic Order. And Vigild is a rite practice to empower the salutary spirits and to debilitate unclean ones. This was found in the lore book by the name of the Old Ways, the Customs and Philosophy of Grave and Faithful Council by Celerus, the lore master. I love that. I do too, but I could not find anything else on this rite of Vigild or Vigild or it's V-I-G-Y-L-D. Words are hard. I did the best I could. If you have an issue with my pronunciation, you can send Jibs an email. If you We're have a problem with Cash's pronunciation, just wait. Jibs will screw something up even worse. <laughs> yeah, and we'll just delete your email because <laughs> we don't do that. We love our peoples. Okay, so the 30th of Second Seed. This is more my style this is fishing day a breton holiday celebrated in iliac bay to commemorate those who make a living by fishing that's awesome awesome it is awesome i thought that is cool we need a fishing day in this modern world right here yeah man more minor holidays yes i know make make it so i didn't say anything about miners i said fishermen fisherwomen fishers I don't know where to go with that. I'm gonna be just. I'm just gonna just let you finish. The month of mid-year, the 16th of mid-year, uh, is used to celebrate the middle of the year. No doy. Temples offer blessings at half price. You're gonna like this one. So, mid-year, the temples offer blessings at half price. I literally lulled. Those who are blessed on this holiday for half price are known to feel confident enough to enter dungeons, even though they're not prepared. So this day, in addition to being blessings at half price, is also known to be one of great defeat and untimely death. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
That's awesome. I was like, who writes this stuff? That is freaking hilarious. I loved it. Genius. Yeah. Okay, so 23rd of mid-year. This is Dancing Day. This is a day celebrated in Dagger Falls, a day of merriment for citizens from all walks of life in where our co-host Jibs wears a tight pair of pants and twirls around the city at his leisure. Yeah, that's all in there, bro. That was that's, on the UESP. I don't see that in the show notes. That was in the UESP? No, wow. It right. was in the UESP, for sure. Wow. It's was in the it, footnotes. Was it in the Imperial Library, too? No, no, no. It wasn't in that one. A UESP nailed it, though. It's like down in the foot in the footnotes. It talks oh. about uh, okay. Jester, Jibs. He wears tight pants oh, with a okay. sock shoved in different areas, you know, to spruce things up. Oh, and then he goes around twirling and dancing. But whatever you're into, I don't know. Okay, oh, Sun's Height, okay. the 10th of Sun's Height. This is the Merchants Festival where every shop owner, with the exception of the Mages Guild, a bunch of douches, traditionally lowers their prices by at least half. I also lolled at this. It would be Guild. awesome to have in game. Yeah, it would be awesome. Dancing Day? Oh, the Merchants Festival. Yeah, you're right. Actually, that would be a really good idea for an Elder Scrolls holiday. The Merchants Festival, where they lower the cost of crowns by half. That is something we both know they won't do, but it sounds great. I know. (laughs) It does sound great. So what you and I will do is we will call Zoss and give them this great idea Mm -hmm. that they will poop Mm on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a good idea. Zoss, if you're listening, don't poop on it. It's a good idea. Okay. (laughs) All right. So the 20th of Sun's Height. This is Sun's Rest. And this is a holiday held as citizens devote the day to relaxation and not commerce or prayer. So the Merchants Guild will place heavy fines on any shop that remains open on this day, excluding taverns. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Let's talk about Last Seed. Holidays of the Last Seed on the 11th of Last Seed. This is, here's your opportunity, Jibs, to laugh at me when I'm trying to pronounce something. Kumu Alizeri is a Red Guard festival held yeah, in I'll Sentinel. Yeah, I tried. I succeeded, I think. Uh, Red Guard festival held in Sentinel. This is considered to be their form of Thanksgiving. Oh, that's so like cool. the harvest. That's so cool. Yeah. The 21st of Last Seed, this is Appreciation Day, a holiday devoted to Mara, held in Anticlear, which is a small city located along the shores of Iliac Bay. Which there, um, it turns out in that particular city, their main deity is Mara, so that's where they celebrate it. Hearthfire, the very first of Hearthfire, is when the rites of Moita are practiced by the Sigic Order for the same reason as the Vigild. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, necessary for empowering the salutary spirits and debilitating the unclean ones. So basically, this is an exorcism where they have exorcised the demons. Exorcised the demons. Exactly. The third of Hearthfire is Tales and Tallows, a celebration of necromancy. <laughs> Yes, many citizens fear necromancy and choose to stay indoors on this day. Please, good gracious, add these to the game. <laughs> Holy guacamole, that I want would be it. an awesome one. Oh, sure. Just to change up what happens in cities for a day? 
but like I don't mean to I don't mean to backtrack, but I was thinking of an idea the further further on we were reading, but the uh the merchants guild heavy fines thing or whatever. Like the the merchants that stay open. Man, wouldn't that be awesome just that for that day no merchant is open except for the wandering merchants that you have to find out in the wilderness? <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome, but oh my god, a development nightmare. <laughs> that no. I mean, that would be a nightmare for them. Absolutely. Or maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I'm not a developer type, but I would imagine that'd be very difficult for them to do. Probably. Sounded fun. Anyway. But I like it. I like it. Okay, the sixth of Hearthfire. This is a holiday called Kurat. This is celebrated in the Rothgarian Mountains. On this day, scholars are accepted into varying priesthoods. Hmm. Come on, orcs. That sounds super boring. Come up with a better holiday. Hmm. Okay. Hands down, my favorite, 13th of Frostfall, which is October. The Witches' Festival is celebrated throughout Tamriel. In a clash of the forces of sorcery and religion. Conjurers, witches, thaumaturges, demonologists, and warlocks. Sounds like some really cool classes. Mm. They all meet in secrecy to perform all manners of incantations and conjurations. That is like Elder Scrolls holiday bone right there. I love it. That's the best one. Wow. It's What happened? PvPs. Oh, that's right. Ooh. That... Might be an interesting edit for you. Or leave it in. <laughs> Who cares? Okay. The 30th of Frost... Okay. The 30th of Frostball. Apparently, I have in my notes. <laughs> we will be changing that to Frostball. The 30th Ball. of Frostballs will be... Doing. That was a Freudian typing slip. <laughs> so, sounds like you left your pants off and you went in the snow. The 30th of Frostball. <laughs> you- it's funny because it says the Emperor's birthday celebrated. Celebrate the frost balls. It was the day that he froze his testicles <laughs> off. <laughs> We're going to celebrate it. <laughs> Memorializing Uriel's septum, the VII, which is what? The seventh? The seventh. Memorializing the frost balls. All right. Oh, boy. That is good old fashioned fun right there, people. <laughs> I'm almost done. I know I told you there was a lot of holidays. You could have turned off the podcast, but you didn't. You're still here. You're still here. Okay, Sun's Dusk. The second of Sun's Dusk is the gauntlet. This is the summoning day of Boethia. I thought that was interesting enough to throw in there. Mm -hmm. The eighth of Sun's Dusk is the Moon Festival, which is a Breton holiday. Celebrated in Glen, uh, Glenumbra Moors to honor the ancient goddess of the moon's secunda. Of the moon. That's cool. The moon, singular, secunda. You put the mons? I put the mons. I know, dude. You're on the struggle. You are on the struggle bus this I'm morning. on the struggle bus. Frost balls well, I and may <laughs> or may not have had some beverages while I was doing this particular <laughs> lore lesson. So you can just get off my back. Okay. All right. Deal. Okay. Evening Star, the 20th of Evening Star. Ooh, whoa, 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 whoa. I missed the Warriors Festival. Sun's Dusk, the 20th of Sun's Dusk, is the Warriors Festival celebrated throughout Tamriel, where armorers and blacksmiths traditionally sell their wares at half price. That's weird. I thought that said the Crown Store at half price. 
I know. You know, we should just keep putting subliminal messages into our podcast <laughs> in hopes that our good friends over at Zoss are listening to our show maybe in the background while they work on a nice weekday. Does that happen? I would happen. like to know that. Know. Does that happen? Zoss, does that happen? We need to Crown know Store sale. Crown Store sale. What? Like what maybe in between. And the maybe in between. Jeet's talking. It says 75% off crowns for eight hours only. What? Ooh. Oh, two days? Okay, two That'd days. Be awesome. Well, if they keep releasing all these freaking fantastic um, crown crates, then yeah, I need dude, crown I, sales. I I need crown sales. There's there's no way I can afford all this stuff, <laughs> dude. I'm, I'm gonna break the freaking bank this month again. So <laughs> your wallet's gonna be crying out. It's crying right now. It is. <laughs> but no. So I mean, we've already talked about this. This is. It is what it is, but this is my entertainment. Like, I'm not a big partier dude. I don't like yeah. go out and go to bars and crap like that. This is my fun. Yeah. So I don't care. I'll spend the money. I'll drop it. Yeah. I don't care. Every time you spend money, a day loses its wings. Oh, crap. You spend a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Even, let's talk about Evening Star. This is basically um, December. Yeah. The 20th of Evening Star, this is the Invocation of Molag Ball. I did not find very much information on that, so I don't know where that's celebrated or how it's celebrated yeah. or why, for Pete's sake. Yeah. It's Molag Ball. Right. Yeah, he should go out in the snow with no pants on. <laughs> Molag Frozen Ball. Molag Frost yes. Ball. All right. That happened. So the 25th of Evening Star, which is basically Christmas. Yeah. The New Life Festival is celebrated for several days in Wayrest, and this was originally a holiday for the long-forgotten god of debauchery, but it has become a time of gift-giving parties and parades. Man, that was a lot of dates, but dang, that was cool. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an off-the-cusp a little bit lore lesson, but it tells totally more different. about the history of Tamriel as yeah. a whole. yeah. And I wanted to make sure that we're co- that we cover the basics. Another one that I think I want to cover is, and this one is going to confuse the crap out of me too. But um, I think like the astronomy of Elder Scrolls. Oh yeah, yes. There's a lot of theory yeah. to it. Um, I would like so that. that one might be another one that I may end up covering in the future. Um, but if yeah. you have any, if you have any thoughts. On Lore Lessons, don't hesitate to get a hold of us. I'm always looking for new, fun stuff. The only thing that keeps me from doing some of these... Why don't we talk about Lore Lesson number 28 on the Black Marsh? And that's... Get your mind out of the murk, Merkmeyer. I literally can't even say anything right now. Yeah. you. Well, no, it's time for my Lore Lesson. So this is the time where you shut up. Where you shut your mouth. Okay, got it. (laughs) You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Carry on. So everything in Black Marsh wants you dead. That says senior writer designer <laughs> Layman Tuttle from Zenimax Online Studios. Oh, During our Merkmeyer preview, he actually said that I had to pause it. And I had to write that down and put it in quotes because I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we are rapidly approaching the release of ESO's next DLC, and we still cannot believe it is this soon. 
But Zoss has been in absolute beast mode with their content release schedule. So who are we to poo-poo new content? So we shall not. Merkmeyer, my friends. Let's expand on the previous lore lesson that we talked about with the Argonians and take a little bit more of an in-depth look at the region we're all going to be diving into. Don't dive because it's shallow. We don't need any cervical injuries. Trench foot. Right. So, yeah, there's that. But anyway, Merkmeyer. What is it? Where is it? It sits on the southern tip of Black Marsh, and we are very, very excited about exploring the new territory. And... I want, kind of want to dive right into it. Let's talk about geography. Do it. Yeah. It's not that hard at this point to understand what the Black Marsh is comprised of. It's very dense, very dank swampland in the southeastern part of Tamriel. Um, one of the playable beast races of the Elder Scrolls Online, which you know the Argonians have made their home in this territory for many millennia. And also... A very mysterious race of sentient trees Mm -hmm. make their home in the Black Marsh, and they are known as the Hist. We have talked about them before, but we'll chit-chat a little bit about them tonight. It is known this morning, this afternoon, whenever you're listening, so you're comfortable with the setting. Okay. The Hist is known to have a symbiotic relationship with the Argonians, and the Hist sap itself is known to be related to actually deciding the sex of an Argonian at birth. Not like sex, yes or no, but like sex, male and female type thing. Mm-hmm. That's it? No chuckle? No, no, you... No, I'm just, I'm, Thanks for paying attention. Be, I, I was paying attention. I'm just... You're, pl- you're playing ESR right now, aren't you? Oh my gosh. You want to go there? You want to no, go there? I don't. <laughs> Bordered by Morrowind to the north and Cyrodiil to the west. Black Marsh is a vast network of marshlands and waterways, making travel by land slow and difficult. Although, we are going to be able to use our mounts and we do should we will not, which we have been told in the preview of Merkmire. We will not have the issue of um, having to dismount and remount and dismount and remount. Only if you run up against a water hyacinth that's in the water that you have to get because you're like me and you can't pass up shiny objects or things that help you with your craft. Squirrel. Squirrel. So, <laughs> all right. So the travel routes. Even when they're cleared, the grasses grow so fast that the travel routes are recovered nearly as quickly as they can be trimmed and cut down. That's crazy, man. Yes, very lush, fertile land. Insects feeding on soft, fleshy travelers like Jibs with his pale white skin. <laughs> Flooding rivers, native Nagas, and caravan raiders also take advantage of the opportunities presented on Black Marsh's harsh roadways. All this being said... The most effective way to travel and trade in Black Marsh, despite Imperial attempts to cultivate a land-based system, is by its system of waterways, which are vast and travel quite a distance. So a lot of the trade that happens down in this area happens via the waterways. Fun fact. In the book, The Argonian Account, which is found in Oblivion and Skyrim, Oblivion and Skyrim, mm-hmm. 
The poor condition of Black Marsh's roads prevents food shipments from arriving in a fresh state at all times. So trade along these routes being severely challenged, any food that gets delivered is most likely spoiled or near spoiled. Gosh, that's terrible. It takes them forever. Yeah. That's gross. They got to have bad breath. That's all I'm saying. Argonian breath. Dude. Hmm. Yeah. That poor Argonians. Most of the Argonian population live near the waterways and swamps. That's just because that's where uh, most of the travel is most effective. That's where they feel more comfortable. Uh, That's the southern part of the region. It has been said that everything in Tamriel flows down to Black Marsh. Oh, gosh. Take that however you want to take that. Oh, man. It's the truth. There is officially far worse things than whatever that, what's that term? Foot? Uh, 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 We said it earlier. Lake foot? Swamp foot? Trench foot. Trench foot. Yeah. There's officially worse things than that. Yeah, because you could be getting bit by the tsetse fly, standing in water up to, standing in dirty water up to your knees, and a turd floats by. On turd us. (laughs) That could happen. That may happen. So there's that. Anyway. Okay, let's talk about some of the cities in the region the city of black rose which we've talked about black rose prison Mm -hmm. this first appeared in the elder scrolls arena which was the very first game in the series it is located near the legendary forest of mirkwood mirkwood with an m-u-r-k not an m-i-r-k as would be in the lord of the rings before the city was founded during the first era the era the area was traversed by the imperial navy as they hunted down a no- notorious brigadier by the name of Red Bramon. Huh. I thought that was interesting. So the city of Black Rose first appearing in Elder Scrolls Arena. Before the city was founded during the first era, it was traversed by the Imperial Navy. They're looking for this notorious dude named Red Bramon. Here's a fun fact on Red Bramon. He was an Argonian, a very infamous brigadier who made his home in the region of Black Marsh, now known as Black Rose. He was known for his piracy against the Alessian Empire in the area of Topal Bay. He is revered as the first to ever venture deep into the Black Marsh. Bramon and his motley crew would perform raids and disappear into the thick marshlands without recourse, because nobody else would follow them, before they were finally tracked down, hunted, and Red Bramon was beheaded by the Imperial Navy in the first era, year 1033, and his head was brought back to Alessia. Wow. Yeah. Trippy, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Off with his head! I don't want you to cut it off. That was perfect in every sense of the word. That just happened. It did just happen. (laughs) The city of Black Rose was later founded by a community of Lilmothit. Lilmothit, which I would just, just wait for it. Yes, they have something to do with Lilmoth. Huh. Lilmothit, a fox-like beast race who was said to be distantly related to the Khajiit of elsewhere. Kind of neat, huh? Yeah. That should have been a should have been a fun fact. Should have been a fun I'm fact. Such a loser. Well, you failed it that one. Been. Don't do it again. I That's did. your warning. 
When the Lilmothit went extinct during the reign of Akaviri Potentate Versidu Shai in the Second Era, this was possibly related to the Kanatan flu, the settlement was converted into the Black Rose prison. Kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had to go back and read that guy's name again, particularly the last part. Red Brahmin? Uh, no, uh, Dushai. With Dush. Oh, you mean Akaviri Potentate versus uh, Dushai? Yeah, that one. Versus Dushai, yeah. Say it slower. Elder Scrolls words. Not easy. <laughs> the northern Black Marsh city of Stormhold is described as a very tense place due to its close proximity to the land of the Dunmer. Hmm. Yeah. The air is probably a little thicker up there. Originally founded by ancient aliens, a large labyrinth was built beneath the city of Stormhold, which was eventually abandoned. Late in the First Era, to be exact, to be precise, First Era, year 2812, hmm. the city was reclaimed by the Dunmer and converted into a center for slave trade. Guess who were the enslavees? The Argonians. Argon, yep. Hence the reason, if you will recall our lore lesson on the Argonians and on the Dunmer, hence the reason why the Argonians hate the Dunmer. Sorry. And probably vice versa. Fun fact! During the time of Elder Scrolls Online, Stormhold is controlled by the Ebonheart Pact uh, mm. in attempt to address <laughs> racial tensions and revive its economy after slavery was abolished in the region. Dang EPs. Fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, Mirkwood. As the legend holds, Mirkwood is the forest that ever moves. Full of quote, elves. unquote. What's that? Is it full of elves? What were the rings? No. no? Not, okay. All right. Oh, full, no, that's a different. That's M I R K. Yeah, I know. I just. This is M U R K. As in, you know, murky, hmm. poopy water. Did you say hippie so, water? Poopy. Oh, poopy. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Like, like. oh, buddy, you got to go to the bathroom? Are you making onesies or twosies? Do you have to go boopies? Say, how does that work? Do they just take a crap in their swamp? Like, is there, like, designated areas? I mean, not to d- detract here, but think about that for a second. I don't want to. All of <laughs> Poo water, Jude. Like it's, it's poo water. Just, just think, folks. Anytime you get knocked back and you land on your back in that water, you are inhaling some poop water. It's going to happen. Carry on. Unless you keep your nostrils above water, then you might be in the safe zone. But apparently, all of the rest of the Tamriel poops, and it all goes to Merkmire. We are literally going to Tamriel sewers with this DLC. I'm going to need to buy myself some higher boots. I'm going to buy myself a big old uh, rain suit and that well, you know that big singlet go. Yep. there you go Jib's gonna look like Paddington Bear on a rainy day you can call me Paddy <laughs> okay Mirkwood as the legend holds is the forest that ever moves this forest is located near the city of Black Rose deep in Black Marsh's swamps apparently an organization based in Stormhold called the Conclave of Ball Two A's, not the one with Molag ball bag. This is B A A L, Conclave of Ball. (laughs) 
can discover the current location of the forest by examining the eldest scrolls with the with the aid of an ancient tablet. So, say that again before I butchered that last sentence. An organization based in Stormhold called the Conclave of Baal can discover the current location of the moving forest, Mirkwood, by examining the Elder Scrolls with the aid of an ancient tablet. Hmm. That also could have been a fun fact. Yeah, you are 0 for 2. Failure. One job. Thorn, the city in the northeast. This city is described as a jewel of the east, but is also as deadly as it is beautiful. In the middle of the second era, the city was controlled by the Dunmer House Drez, who employed local Argonians as enforcers and slave catchers. That is blasphemy. To hire an Argonian to go catch Argonian slaves. Yeah, this is like uh, that Assassin's Creed game, Assassin's Hunting Assassin. Yeah. That's bad. Mm. When most Dunmer exited the city to answer Al Malexia's call to arms to assist the second Akaviri invasion of the second year or second era year 572, an Argonian slave by the name of Hayatamin assassinated a House Drez councilman and overthrew the leadership, therefore liberating Thorn from Dunmer control. Hmm. She's like, when the cat's away, House Dress will die. She went all Dark Brotherhood, I mean. man. She did. She did. Also called Thorn Marsh, crime is known to be rampant in Thorn, and the guards tend to turn a blind eye to crime. Hmm. Okay. This one's important. The city of Lilmoth is located in the region of Merkmire itself, and this is found by the Olise Bay. O-L-I-I-S Bay. Lilmoth has a mix of Argonian imperial architecture and is said to be the starting zone for those arriving in Merkmire. Solrest. Solrest is a large city in the south of Black Marsh and it's used as a very large burial site. Fantastic. Kind of interesting. Yeah, kind of interesting look on the different cities. These are all the ones that are mostly closest to the areas of Merkmire. I did not cover every single city in Black Marsh, obviously. Right. Just the ones we may see. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about Merkmire's wildlife because it is plentiful. And like I said before, everything in Merkmire wants you dead. Everything in Black Marsh wants you dead. So, Ahaj Mota. Ahaj Mota. It is a large shelled creature resembling a spiky, long-tailed prehistoric turtle and boasting a series of toxic attacks. Yeah. Scary. He looks like a big, giant, snapping turtle. Yeah. Then, as you mentioned before, the Kotugava are large flying mosquitoes with needle-like stingers. That's gross. Wait till I... Wait till I get to millipedes. Watch you cringe. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. Hackwings. This is a species of giant birds with long saw-like beaks that attack unsuspecting prey and then vanish, only to return once the prey has been weakened or killed by the blood loss. Yeah. It's kind of like a stealth attack and then I'm out. I'll be back. (laughs) 
Be back in a minute. Just gotta get a pack of gum. Okay. For after I eat you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, hack wings, if you look up in the sky in, in Merkmire, you can see hack wings flying all over the place. Mm. Catapult cabbages. Not much information oh. is known at the time of writing. <laughs> <laughs> but these apparently are evil foliages. Based on the name catapult cabbage, I can imagine it has something to do with an airborne vegetable. <laughs> so how'd you die? Guess. Well, I was hit by an airborne cabbage. <laughs> I got hit in the face by some kimchi. <laughs> right in the face. Oh, man. Okay, then there's the voroplasm. We talked about that earlier. Native to the inner... Actually, we talked about that on another Lorla, or another uh, episode when we first talked about um, Merkmire. Mm -hmm. Voroplasm, native uh, to the innermost swamps of Black Marsh, is a puddle of green slime that moves quickly across the water, Ugh. devours its prey very quickly, and ejects the bones as it moves. That's gross. It's awesome. The carnivorous slime is also known to traverse land. Watch where you step, people. Uh, okay. so they literally brought the old horror flick. The what was it? The blob to life with the this? blob. Yeah, yeah. Nice pull, youngin. It's mm. awesome. Thank you, olden. Okay, that's voroplasm. Other lesser known plant species to look out for in Merkmire include the scuttle blooms and the static pitchers. Um, scuttle blooms, I don't know if that has anything to do with, like, the scuttle creatures that are out. They look like little beetles. And then static pitchers. The pitcher plant, if you know, is a normal, real-life, carnivorous plant. The pitcher plant. Look it up. It's kind of cool. Hmm. Much of the foliage in Merkmire will actually react to your presence. So some of the stuff that they explained in the preview... Was that like, they didn't go too deep into it, but like if you're walking by and there's like a, a lizard or a salamander or something on a rock, it may or may not have something happen to it by a nearby plant. Okay. Yeah, like environments that react to you being around. This is intense. I don't know if I want to go here. It's cool. <laughs> I think it's really cool, actually. Um, okay. A species down there that we definitely are going to see are the Naga. The Naga are native Argonian uh, tribes. They're described as being very tall, seven to eight feet, with huge mouths and dripping needle-like fangs. Wow. Yes. They typically take on the role of brigands and highwaymen. Fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic. I have a feeling I'll be killing a lot Talk of those. Talk a little... Yeah, for sure. Guaranteed. Let's talk a little bit about the Hist... As we talked about in a previous lore lesson, the Hist are a race of sentient trees that live and thrive in Black Marsh and have been an integral part of Argonian culture for a long, long, long time. Uh, they're so important to the Argonian as a whole, it was worth another mention in this lore, in this lore lesson. It's just very interesting tree. Yep. Some actually claim that the Hist is the most ancient race of Nern. They are thought to be mobile, but that fact has not been verified. They are known to be interconnected through some sort of link with each other and with the Argonian. Argonians consider the Hist to be the source of all life. They consider the Hist to be both 
um, their prior existence and their afterlife. So the hist to a traditional Argonian is everything. It life as itself revolves around this tree. Right. It is possible that each Argonian village was actually formed around the growth of a single history. Argonians are able to communicate with histories, which takes on the significance of some type of religious guidance for them. Because they don't really have a religion, traditionally. Yeah. At an Argonian's coming-of-age ceremony, they ingest the sap of the history. Jibs could tell you about this. We don't need to. And no. we could. No, we should. We should. We, we really could. We should not do that thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> so they ingest the sap of the history, and then they are formally named. That's like their name day. Hmm. His sap is said to have part in the growth patterns and even the gender determination of Argonian spawn. The sap is said to produce sacred visions for Argonians and has been used as a powerful hallucinogen. Oh, gosh. Drugs are bad, okay? Man. Yeah. Hmm. Is that how it felt when you nope. had the nope. hist? No. No? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Fun fact. It is also thought that the history can communicate with large numbers of Argonians at one time, as evidenced during the Oblivion Crisis, where the hist called many Argonians to invade the gates of of oblivion. I remember that. That was gnarly. That's a cool story. That's a cool story. Very cool story. That was a story where the Argonians, and this is um, more along the lines of how adept they are at battle, but during this oblivion crisis, they were sent through an oblivion gate to attack the Daedra on their own home turf, and they, and they did so well that they overwhelmed the Daedra. They just completely overran them right into their oblivion gate and they were victorious. Yeah. Didn't they? Great success. That was, uh, we talk about that further detail. I think it was, I know we mentioned that a couple episodes ago. I think it was episode 17, volume one was the Argonian episode. But yeah, go back and listen to that lower lesson. It's fantastic. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a good one. So as you can see, there's an incredibly unique culture and history and geography of the area that we're going to go to. And we cannot, at least Jibs and I, cannot wait to sink our teeth into Merkmire. Um, definitely go back and listen to those to the lore lesson on the Argonians. The race is very, very complex. But at the same time, they have a very simplistic nature. And then the area that they come from is very mysterious. So it's kind of cool to dive in there's a lot more lore than just i mean usually i just hit the tip of the iceberg sometimes i go a little bit deeper but i just want everybody to have a good solid understanding of what these things are at a basic level and then we can revisit later right but yeah hope you enjoyed it yeah that was good man it's um as a race like the argonians they're kind of similar to other races in tamriel like they're very they can be kind to you, but at the same time, you don't want to get on their bad side because they're so good at fighting. <laughs> right. And um, there's just so much to this to this zone. And I remember the, watching the gameplay day stream, and they when they were talking about it and showing it off, it's just it's so unique. It like that that's the thing about ESO zones. It's you know particularly the the DLCs. You know they just pull you in because they're so incredibly unique. 
the areas, you know, the people you come in contact with and the um, you know, obviously the lore, you know, it's it's so different and I'm pretty stoked. Can't wait. The lore. We are almost to thirty lore lessons. Did you know that? No way. Yeah, you might. I actually have it as lore lesson twenty eight in the show notes, but it's lore lesson twenty nine. So there's wow. that happening. Yes, we are going to talk about something that we probably should have talked about a long stinking time ago, Mr. Jibs. Yeah. The Amulet of Kings. It's kind of an important trinket. It's kind of surprising it took us this long. So what? We've had a lot of other stuff to talk about. It's true. It's been a while. So, yeah. Unfortunately, it is a little bit shorter than our other lore lessons, but um, your ears are probably bleeding from us talking about class changes. We're really sorry about that. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> so let's talk about the Amulet of Kings. This is an amulet. If you've played the games, I'm sure that you have heard about it because it's kind of a big deal. Traditionally worn by the ruling emperor of Cyrodiil, <laughs> the Amulet of Kings served as a symbol of their divine right to rule. Um, okay. The Amulet of Kings is a legendary trinket, and it really needs your understanding to build a foundation of its importance in the game, in the series. And I, I actually learned quite a bit when I was researching it. Let's talk about this. The Amulet of Kings is a pendant housing the red diamond. This is also known as the Kim El Adabal. Don't worry, I'll explain so this is a huge alien soul gem that was held in place by a gold clasp and the pendant, in, the pendant itself that housed the gem was surrounded by eight smaller gems representing the eight divines. Ooh. The eight divines, of course, the original Cyrodiilic Pantheon were created by Queen Alessia. So there was mm -hmm. eight gems adorning the edges of this pendant which housed the red diamond and the eight divines were symbolic to the, uh, or the eight gems were symbolic to the eight divines. Right. Fun fact. It is said that the soul of each reigning emperor was enshrined within the red diamond itself through a coronation ritual involving the dragon fires and the divine covenant. This was done to form one soul from all of the rulers of Cyrodiil to provide counsel to each new emperor. The Amulet of Kings could only be adorned by those of dragon's blood. So, to explain that, we're going to talk about the history of the Amulet of Kings. Mm -hmm. It is said, there's actually a, two, a couple of theories here on how the Amulet of Kings... The Red Diamond, known as the Kim El Adabal, came to be. So the first is the Kim El Adabal became or became to be when Lorcan was slain. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about the heart of Lorcan. So Lorcan was slain and his heart was cast across Tamriel, right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. So when his heart was cast across Tamriel, it is said in legend that as the heart flew across the landscape, a single drop of its blood fell and landed on a red crystal formation 
in an aliad well beneath the surface of Tamriel. So the drop of a heart's flying across, drop of blood falls, lands perfect shot, right in an aliad well, nothing but net, right on top of a red crystal formation. <laughs> so this single drop of blood was infused with such powerful magicka that it fused to and empowered this crystal. The Aliads, Daedra worshippers, found the crystal, polished it, cut it, crafted it into the shape of a diamond. It was at that moment that it was given the name, the Kim L. Audubon. Pretty interesting, right? Very. Fun fact. An additional theory suggests that the red crystal was actually adorned with Akatosh's blood himself, drawn from his own heart, not that of Lorcan. It was theorized that when he used the gem to bless St. Alessia with dragon's blood on her deathbed, it created the covenant that stated as long as her bloodline remained pure, the dragon fires would burn, and Akatosh would seal the veils between Oblivion and the mortal plane, keeping Tamriel safe from the Daedra. That's theory number two, mm -hmm. that it was not Lorcan's blood at all from his ripped out heart. It was the actual blood from Akatosh. Right. Yes. So the gem was fashioned into an amulet and given to St. Alessia on her deathbed. After her death, the amulet absorbed Alessia's soul and began to be passed down to every subsequent ruler of Cyrodiil. After the Alessian Empire fell late in the First Era, the amulet was actually lost. This is a total freaking trippy part right here. I was like, what? But yeah, apparently this happened. Strangely enough, strangely enough the amulet was rediscovered when Remen Cyrodiil was born with the amulet on his forehead atop the hill at Sancrator. What? How in the hell does that happen? <laughs> but after that happened, the Amulet of Kings then regained its prominence and, beca and became a part of the Dragonfire's ritual, which took place at the coronation of every new emperor. Let's talk about that ritual. As an essential part of the coronation of a new emperor, this ritual was performed, the Dragonfire's ritual where the new ruler's soul was linked the, to the Amulet of Kings. The new ruler would travel to the Temple of the One to light the enchanted dragon fires, which would burn until his death. Man, this is bringing back all kinds of Oblivion feels right now. Yes, Oblivion feels, and also, like we're going to talk about here in a second, but the dragon fires and mm -hmm. how in second era in the ESO timeline how somebody wanted them lit so so bad that he was willing to do a whole bunch of catty ass crap to get it done yep right okay fun fact each gem in the golden part of the amulet of the amulet of kings represents one god of the eight divines however my friends in the elder scrolls online there are only two white gems adorning the top and the bottom of the amulet, and the other gems representing the eight divines are missing. What? I could not find any information on why the heck that is the deal. But every picture 
if you look at screenshots of the Amulet of Kings, I mean, if somebody knows, you know who will know? I'll bet you. Well, we know the lore master probably knows. <laughs> hey, uh, Lawrence, <laughs> I'll bet you, Amor. I'll let me bet call you, him up real quick. I'll bet you Amaretheus knows. I, if he doesn't, I will be surprised. I'll be surprised too because that guy's brain is bigger than you and I combined. So there's By the that. way, his podcast? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Written in yeah. uncertainty, it's pretty cool. So, um, yeah, if you know, let us know. Anyway, okay. So let's talk a little about the, the Interregnum. This is more in the timeline of Elder Scrolls Online where we are playing... As we know, or maybe you don't know if you haven't played through your main quest line, during the Second Era, the five companions set out on a quest to rediscover and reclaim the Amulet of Kings. It was once again lost. In summation of the events, and without spoiling it for you and making everybody super mad at Cash, the leader of the five companions, Varen uh, Aquilarios, is tricked by Manamarco, the King of Worms, into believing that the Amulet of Kings could be used in a ritual to rekindle the dragon fires. He did this in hopes of making himself a true dragonborn and legitimizing his claim, Baron Aquilarios, legitimizing his claim to the Ruby Throne. So after a long search, the Amulet of Kings is recovered. There's so much story in this, so I'm really not spoiling much for you guys. But after a long search, the Amulet of Kings is recovered by the by the um, five companions. And when the dragon fires, when the process of being lit, Manamarco reveals that he's a true douchebag and he's his treachery reveals his treachery to everybody. And he immobilizes the companions, uses his power within the amulet and the dragon fires to tear a hole between Oblivion and Mundus. This was known as the Soul Burst. Tearing this hole between Oblivion and Mundus allows Molag Balbag and his Daedra to invade Tamriel. That is the basis of Elder Scrolls Online. That's why you play. This is why we fight! This is why we fight, yeah. So, so there's that. <laughs> I am not going to reveal the rest of the story. That is the basis for the story. The rest of that is to experience for yourself. And reveal what happens with the Amulet of Kings, what happens with you after the Soul Burst, and all that. Yeah, whatever. So yeah, this lore lesson we have waited for quite a while to do. And we were specifically waiting until Frostfall to do this. Because, well, vampires are very Halloween. So here we go. In the words of Frastus of Elnir... An imperial scholar. Undeath is not always a product of renegade mages tampering with souls and rotting flesh. Cursed diseases such as Noxophilic Sanguivoria can corrupt the living. The result is an undead creature that requires the blood of the living for sustenance. Ooh, buddy! Yeah, that's freaking terrifying. Oh, I love it so much! So, Sanguinare Vampiris, or Porphyric Hemophilia. This is the affliction that leads to vampirism in the world of Elder Scrolls. There are tons of vampires out there. I myself have Mm -hmm. a couple characters who are vampires. But what I did not know 
is that there are over 100 types of vampires. It's also spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R-E-S in Elder Scrolls. But over 100 types of vampires that have been discovered in Tamriel. And there's some very interesting things when I get toward the end of this lore lesson that I had no idea about. And now I'm kind of pretty well versed in vampires. But uh, in Iliac Bay alone, over the years, nine different variations of the affliction of vampirism have been discovered. Each variation has its own unique powers and abilities, but at their core, all vampires basically feed on the blood of any warm-blooded creatures. Typically associated with the undead, vampires are said to have a very close connection to the Daedric Prince Molag Ball. Why? Well, Molag Ball is known as the kinfather of vampires, and legend holds that he is the father of Tamriel's first vampire, making him daddy, basically. All other vampires end up being his offspring in the uh, lore of Elder Scrolls. So, did a little more digging on this one because I was like, yeah, kind of I've known him as the as the father of vampires, but kind of why? Well, there is a book called The Spawn of Molag Ball that is findable, discoverable out there in the world. And the book reads, Molag Ball enslaves... Molag Ball defiles. Molag Ball spawns children with the unwilling and harvests the souls of the unwary. Legend tells us that Molag Ball is the father of the first vampire. Though we cannot fully detail the many species of vampires, we may consider all of them to be his offspring. Most vampires can trace their lineage to the same distant ancestor, an unwilling Nedic virgin whom Molag Ball defiled. With her, he spawned a race of monsters who then set upon nomads, spreading his corruption further. Other species of vampires are the result of pacts and bargains with Molag Ball, who answers promises of immortality and power with an eternity of damnation. Molag Ball seeds chaos and strife, spreading discord by corrupting soul after soul. His forces are legion. His patience is limitless. His ultimate goal is the domination and enslavement of all living things. Unquote. Well. Yeah, I was like, damn, somebody knows Molag Basso. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Now he sounds like even more of an a-hole. Yeah. He does. You know, I probably um, would like him better if he didn't decide to, you know, screw up all of Nern. I'm just, like, I, I would probably have more respect for him, because I do, I'm actually a big fan of vampirism. And yeah, I just, see, I, I, I'm i a big Halloween guy, so I kind of like vampirism, but the way that he got to it, dude, he's a raper. Yeah. He's a freaking raper. He's terrible. Yeah, that's true. That that brings him down pretty, pretty low on the, t- I mean... Yeah. That that's a douche right there. You know what I just realized too? Mm. Every day that I play this game, I stare up at Molag Ball. I actually have an effigy in my office of a raper. You that's not good. Consider your ways. 
I should reconsider my ways, but I'm not taking that statue down. I'll tell you that much because it's sick. It's so sick. <laughs> I'm not a raper, so why should I care, right? Oh, move on. Oh, okay. Sorry about the trail off. Tamriel considers vampires a blight on the world, and no other undead are considered as powerful as a vampire. A vampire's uncontrollable thirst for fresh, warm blood drives their very being. A newly turned vampire's first kill is often someone close to them, such as a friend or family member, due to their inability to control their new hunger. Vampires have many similarities to lichens and, uh, actually not lichen, to lich and wraiths. In that they are recognized as sentient beings capable of understanding speech and communicating effectively. So although they're undead, they are very effectively undead. Unlike many other types of undead, they can be controlled by a necromancer, or that can be controlled by a necromancer. Vampires practice free will and roam Tamriel of their own accord. Many vampires are able to live their own lives and they live relatively normal lives other than the urge that they have to feed on blood. So with regular feeding, the worst of the symptoms of the disease can be somewhat controlled and then they can continue to live among society. Vampires, though, once they start to have symptoms of not feeding, they can be recognized by an exaggerated pallor of their skin, very bright and attentive eyes. Many uh, are adorned with the signs of stress because they... Are, they're restless. They need sleep. Uh, vampires are very, very sensitive to light, especially many of the uh, different species of vampire are very sensitive to the rays of the sun. So the radiant light and the heat exposure from the sun can burn their skin and inhibit their recovery from wounds. And their constant hunger also delays the healing process for them. And then... Um, because of these health issues, it further exacerbates the vampire's lust for blood. Oh. Kind of neat. Yeah. Okay. One particular strain of vampirism. This one is called Noxophilic Sanguivoria. These type of vampires have been known to um, have special abilities during the night hours. For instance, resistance to pain and blind courage. So they just flat out run right into danger without even thinking about it. This particular strain has also been known to be immune to normal vampiric effects of sunlight. And this is the form of vampirism that we see in Elder Scrolls Online. This is why you can be bitten, become a vampire, and still survive in the daylight hours. I love that. Victims of this form of vampirism have also been known to describe their transition to the disease um, from their life as a mortal as like some kind of a dreamlike passage. They recount having been bathed in a pool of black blood. This may indicate that some kind of ritual has to be performed in order for the transformation from mortal to vampire to be complete. And then some believe that this ritual is actually practiced in certain parts of Tamriel, while others consider it to be a myth or possibly a hallucination by those afflicted with the disease. So they really don't know. Is there a ritual? Could there be a ritual? Um, it's true. 
Just so you know. If you're a vampire in ESO, you know this. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I have a fun fact for you. I was really stoked to see this fun fact because this plays right into my RP of my new character. I was really stoked on this. The priests of RK are extensively trained and equipped to cleanse a victim afflicted with this disease. But only if the victim manages to escape the vampire attacker before being completely drained of blood and before the victim is afflicted with blood from the attacking vampire. So priests of RK battle the undead. They are sent, they can essentially be trained to be vampire hunters. But cool. what happens... They're like the uh, Van Helsings of Elder Scrolls. Exactly, because they, they fight for RK, who is... He's a, he battles the undead. Battles necromancy. Um, and remember I said, when we talked about necromancy, that the only true fear of a necromancer is the wrath of RK. Right. DLC, right there. Boom. DL- oh my god, shut. Okay, I'm just going to say uh, this for a moment. We need a vampire DLC, story DLC, not that a chapter. Would be pretty sick, like a full like Dawnbreaker, like yank it out of Skyrim full and on, drop dude. it in ESO. Yeah, full on, man! Awesome. Vamps awesome. in ESO. Need the quest line. Yep. Well, we're definitely on on a footing for it, right? Yeah, we are. Yep. Yep. So, okay, this is where it gets interesting. These are some. Researched known vampire clans. And I think some of this might really surprise you, Mr. Chips. Enlightened. Several have been known to exist throughout the history of Tamriel. First is the Cyrodiil Vampirum Order, the CVO. Referred to as Our Order by its members, this is Cyrodiil's native vampire clan. They dominate vampirism in the province having ousted all other bloodlines, all-out war with the other bloodlines of vampires. They overtook them all and became the dominant force in Cyrodiil for vampires. Its members are known as being experts in concealment and political manipulation, having infiltrated all factions of Cyrodiil politics as influential, influential entrepreneurs of imperial society. Wow. Dude, that's so bitching. I when I was They're reading like all this elite. stuff. Right. When I'm reading all this stuff, I'm like, okay, this is very reminiscent of like interview with a vampire, where you have super in influential people that are vampires. And people in society. The Lost Boys. Okay, yeah. maybe a little bit more dirtbaggy, but still. A bunch of kids that nobody had any idea that they were freaking vampires. They had their own private society. But this one happens to be incredibly smart and influential because of the things that they've been able to infiltrate. So bad ass. Awesome. Loved it. Okay. I got super excited right there. Really apologize for that. But sorry, not sorry. Okay. The Volkahar clan. This powerful vampire drive, uh, tribe from eastern Skyrim is renowned for their paranoia and cruelty. They've been rumored to be able to freeze their victims' blood in their veins with nothing but the vampire's breath. 
Although they're rumored to live beneath the ice of remote and haunted lakes, the Volcahar clan's members are also known to blend seamlessly into society and their preference is to feed on either unsuspecting or sleeping victims. Wow. Yep. Okay. This is where it gets... Crap gets real right here. Okay. The Bonsamu. The Bonsamu are a tribe of Bosmeri vampires. Not like it was... It wasn't bad enough with them eating their own people. A tribe of Bosmeri vampires hailing from the forest of northern Valenwood. They're known to blend into Bosmeri society and cannot be recognized as vampires unless they are viewed by candlelight. I don't know what that meant. Like you view them by candlelight and you're like, vampire! Or like, do they disappear? I don't know. Something skin related or eye, you know, to their eyes or something. Just, I don't know. I don't know either. Okay. Here's another one. The Telboth. Also lurking in the dark canopies of Northern Valenwood is the Telboth. They are also a vampire clan, but not necessarily Bosmer. They are known to prey on children. The afflicted children retain their place in their family waiting patiently for years before murdering all of their unafflicted family members due to their unnatural hunger. Holy crap. Pretty terrible. (laughs) There are some things in a war that you keep out. One is someone's personal life and the kids. Yeah. That just goes against all of that. Elder Scrolls (laughs) does not, they do not hold back. Nope. Slavery, racism, and... Everything that has to do with children. Yeah. It's gnarly. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. I know. So then the last one that I'm going to mention, this is just the last one that I'm going to mention. There's certainly more. The Kirilth clan. The Kirilth clan, also known as the Shade Mist Vampires, is yet another vampire family in the region of Valenwood. The Kirilth clan are known for their ability to turn into pure mist. Because of this, They have an inherent weakness to water, where they can be vaporized very easily. This group of bloodsuckers can be found in the Shade Mist Moors of Greenshade, on the outskirts of Woodhearth. There's a certain storyline that Jibs and I may or may not be a part of at the end of our podcast that takes place right this second in Woodhearth. All I want to do is get the F out of Woodhearth because now I'm freaked out. <laughs> totally freaking wow. freaked out. I know. I want to go. I, I want to have to go read more on these. I didn't realize there were so many clans, let alone clans in general. My brother, specifically the Kirilth clan. This one caught my fancy so much when I was reading about it. Next week, our lore lesson will be on the Kirilth clan. Ooh. Okay. Yes, because this is actually something that you can go play through in ESO. Right. So when I read this, I was like, uh, yeah, we're absolutely going to cover this. Because, I mean, okay, put it this way. Every lore lesson for Frostfall, October, is going to be not necessarily vampire, but something Halloweener. Copy? Something haunted, something gnarly, something scary. 
we're going to do and this is this is going to give me some love for next week too so we're going to cover the Kirill clan and maybe uh maybe some other stuff but um it's going to actually give me time to go play through that stuff in green shade pretty cool stuff yep um so anyway that's that is the vampire i it was really well worth the wait i love that this is lore it's rich lore for the elder scrolls and elder scrolls online in particular go research this stuff there is so much more i'm just hitting the tip of the iceberg with it and i love that there's something that's in our own pop culture that's in our own culture in the real world and it has been transferred and enriched in elder scrolls i just the minds of the people that write this stuff We're going to continue a little bit with our lore lesson from last week on vampires. Mm -hmm. And I promised you that there was a very important clan of vampire that lurked in Valen Wood that we were going to cover today. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about the Kirill vampires. And then if you're really, if your interest is really peaked in vampirism, we're going to talk about how. You become a vampire in ESO, and what are the pros and the cons? They're all yeah. pros. Minus the fire. Oh, uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> there are some Minus cons. The <laughs> but but uh, I'm really enjoying my, my vampire. I have two vampire characters, but this one I'm actually engaged in and playing him. It's because I'm RPing him, you know, with myself. Of course you are. But um, I'm, I know, I'm such a Expect geek. nothing less. That's right. All right. So anyway, lore lesson 31. Let's jump in. 31 freaking lore lessons. Oh my gosh, dude. How many? 31? That's a lot. 31? This is 31? Good gracious. Yep. That's right. I think it's 31. Yeah, I think it's 31. Okay. A lot anyway. of lore. The Kirill vampires, as we spoke about last week, they are found in the Shade Mist Moors of Greenshade. The Kirill clan, also known as the Shade Mist Vampires is one of the four major clans located in the forest province of Valenwood, one of my favorites. They're known mostly for their ability to turn into mists, and the Kirill vampires have an innate weakness to water, and they can be vaporized rather easily if they're attacked while in that mist hmm. form. Sounds like a basic flaw in design, if you ask me. <laughs> Because vampires are supposed to be insanely awesome. But these ones, it turns out, if you have a spray bottle, you can handle the problem. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well. Can that be an item in game? Whatever. Spray bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so during the timeline of ESO, that in which we are playing, the Kiroth clan has inhabited uh, a rather lengthy cave system on the outskirts of Woodhearth near the township of Longhaven. So in a quest line that details the infamous vampire clan by the name of Mist and Shadow, that's the name of the quest line, the player will learn that the clan has been terrorizing the residents of Longhaven. The township is so fed up with it that they hire a vampire hunter by the name of Mel Adris, a Dunmer warrior, to call the threat. Now this dude is really a cool character. So don't pass up this quest. It's really pretty cool. 
Uh, Mel Adris was quite dedicated to his craft and uh, and also to ridding all of Tamriel of the vampiric threat. It just turns out you run into him um, in this particular area for the quest Mist and Shadow. Now, I will not reveal the outcome of the quest line. That is not my job. That is your job. This is yours to find and enjoy, and it's really a fun quest. So, like I said before, don't don't pass this up. Get back to Green Shade. So, after the resolution of the quest line, the Kirilth clan continues to plague the land. A Bosmeri member of the vampire clan by the name of Galareth, female. She's also known as, she's known through myth as the Wild Witch. But she is said to be the only person who can cure others of vampirism. Ooh. Yes, the plot thickens. Mm. Galareth, she's a part of a follow-up quest to Mist and Shadow, and this quest is actually called Lost in the Mist, where a Bosmeri bard, there are bards in Elder Scrolls, in which a Bosmeri bard by the name of Thorinor asks the player to find his missing wife, Elsinia. She was among the original residents of Longhaven that went missing, presumably, presumably as a result of the Kirilth clan's infestation of the area. So, I will not reveal how that quest ends, because the fun of experiencing these quests and their outcomes is yours. No spoilers. So, go solve the issues as part of your own adventures. I think that you'd really have a good time. Now's the time. But I think now's the time. Yeah, it's uh, halloween yep. so get after it. Let's transition to talking about player vampires in ESO. Because this one is now an important part of my current gameplay. And I'm really kind of enjoying it. Like, look at everything. So, how do you become a vampire in ESO? There's a few different ways. The first one, if you know a vampire, ask them. So, if you have a friend in ESO who's been afflicted with the disease, it can be a beneficial relationship. Because he will feed on you... And then you catch the disease, turning yourself into a vampire. As long as your friend has the passive ability in the vampire skill line unlocked, and that is called blood ritual. That means that he or she can transfer the disease to another willing player. Not just willy-nilly. You've got to be willing once per week. The process takes place at a vampire altar shrine where your vampire friend visited during their own induction to the disease. So there's certain places in the game that that has to take place. You know, I'm not really into being a troll at all. But if there was ever a time I wanted to be one, it'd be right now. Like if you want, they want you to take them to some place, and you group up and you're a vampire and you take them to the shrine and you just feed on them. Hmm. My friend, I can provide this for you. I don't know. If that's ever been a thing, I'm not saying it should be a thing, but man, would that be funny. Would you like a bite? <laughs> no. It will only cost you 10,000 gold. Oh, fantastic. No. No, Cash. That's a bad boy, and we're going to talk about paying for vampire bites in just a minute. So hold your shorts on. Okay, second way. Join a vampire guild. Now, I did not know this until I started research, but it makes total sense. As a roleplay alternative, many guilds exist in ESO where being a vampire is not only the premise, 
but also a requirement. So they may, as part of their induction or their acceptance requirements, provide a new member with the opportunity to become a vampire, specifically in the realm of role play. Now, I know myself, if I was running a role play guild that was specifically for vampires, which is a great idea, but no, I don't have the time for that. I would definitely make this an option for players who are interested in doing so, where you set up some type of a role play event where that person gets bitten and now all of a sudden you, they bring you or you bring them into your fold. So, or like I was just saying, you could start your own vampire guild, providing you have the disease, the disease yourself to spread to other new members. I personally saw this as an extremely awesome way to RP as a vampire. I'm like, that sounds like so much freaking fun. How much RP could you write and how much, you know, of storyline could you get into in your guilds in in a, in a RP vampire guild with this type of basis? That is it would be very awesome. unique. Yes, very much. And the same thing for werewolves. Yeah. I mean, you literally could make your own script in between a werewolf and a vampire RP guild such as like what was the name of that super cheesy movie that a movie series that's out there twilight twilight yep where like you sparkle and you fall in love and uh, you want a sparkle cash no i want to vomit now that i brought that up (laughs) that's what i wanted to so speaking of vomiting another way to get attack or to uh get the disease of vampirism is to get attacked by a blood fiend so not an easy way, but it is a way that this can be done. If you want to start off your vampiric adventures all by your lonesome, you could seek out these NPC vampires called blood fiends. These NPCs are not spawned all the time, however. The ones that can actually give you vampirism are not spawned all the time. And you got to seek them out at certain times and places. So there's places in Bankerai. There's places in Reaper's March and there's places in the Rift that are common, commonly known to um, have these blood fiends spawn. Now, these particular ones only spawn at night, typically around server time, midnight, and every few days. So there is a chance that these particular blood fiends that can give you the disease may have already been killed by players by the time you reach them, which kind of makes it more fun. But once yeah. you find them... If they attack you and hit you two to three times, you can become infected. And once you become infected, this triggers a quest for you to complete. And then if you if you want to know whether or not you've been infected, just look at your uh, active effects on your character screen. And if it says vampirism, then you know you're now among the undead. So kind of. I wonder if there's not a awesome. way to make that into an event. I mean, like player um, hosted event. I, I don't know how that would work, be. but I think that sounds fun. Okay. Another opportunity to become a vampire. Buying a bite. Yeah. Yeah. So this is 100% your prerogative. There are two ways to buy a bite. The first, the infected player can sell a bite. So my, my character, when my bite's up. 
I could say, okay, because you get one bite per week. I could say vampire bite for sale over zone chat, which would make me a total douche. And then person says, I want to do it. I'll pay you such and such a money or you name your price and then you go and you bite them and the process ensues. I do not like this at all because I think these should be free. They come to you for free. Give them for free. Come on. Just be cool. Anyway. Yeah, I've had people that are really about, like, they ref- they'll always give it free for guildies. Especially if you're in a large trade guild, reach out in the trade guild. And then I've also come across people that they were given a free bite, so therefore they pay it forward. And they will always get exactly. free bites because they were yeah. given ones. So. Yeah, so all I'm saying is don't pay for a bite. If you're really in a hurry... Another way to get it done is to actually buy the token from the Crown Store. You can do this for both um, um, Lycanthropy, Lycanthropy, which is werewolfism, and vampirism. There's tokens for each in the Crown Store. I did not check how much they were. I think they're 1,500-ish. Yeah, around there. Yeah, so... Uh, you can buy from the crown store and then uh, they would start that quest for you and then all of a sudden, blabbo, you're a vampire. So anyway, I would say those two opportunities, uh, buying a bite, those are if you're kind of more desperate. Yeah. But I personally think it's kind of criminal to charge for it. But Man, I, I'm more against buying it on the crown store than I am paying a player. I don't think that's... I just... It's just personal opinion. I do not think stuff like that should be on the crown store. You have players yeah. out there, you, and then I just, I don't know. I, I don't feel good about that one. Yeah, well, I'm not going to take part in it, and I'm always willing to give up my bites for gratis. So anyway, all right. Those ways to get bit by a vampire, get vampirism aside, now you're infected. What do you do now? So once you're infected by the disease, you travel to the nearest way shrine. You'll be greeted by an NPC who will give you a quest by the name of Scion of the Blood Matron. I think, I don't remember having to travel for this though. I think right at the, when I got bit, I think it was right. You bit me, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, it was you. I thought that that quest came up like right away. So are you like my vampire son? Oh. Am I your vampire daddy? I guess. Oh, God. You're my Molag ball bag. I owed you. <laughs> You're literally my Molag ball bag. Yeah, I'm your master. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Okay, Keep so it. this is a solo quest only. You will not be able to group for Scion of the Blood Matron. Um, it, but it really is kind of fun. You learn about the origins of vampirism in Elder Scrolls. You um, So unless you've already listened to the lore lessons, you're going to kind of get it again. It might surprise you. It's really kind of a cool story. And then once you've completed the quest, you will unlock your vampire skill line permanently. It will be yours. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some pros and cons of vampirism. There certainly are both. Um, first off, there's the stages of vampirism and then the need to feed. So your vampire character will experience four different levels of vampirism. Stage one to two takes 30 minutes of not feeding. Stage two to three takes 60 minutes of not feeding. And after 90 minutes of not feeding, you'll reach stage four. 
These stages mean different things. What do I mean by not feeding? You literally have to go feed on NPC characters in the game. You sneak up behind them, the little X pops up, and then you can feed off of them. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. But just know that they will um, aggro. You don't kill the person. You stun them a little bit. And it with some passives, it increases the stun so you can get away. But you will acquire a bounty for this if you do it within a city. Um, and they will attack you. So unless you just want to flat out kill them, like I normally kind of RP it a little bit. I like to feed and then bail. Because I don't want to take anybody's life because of my choices. So oh, I'm, you're so holy. I know. Let's talk about the stages. Stage one. You take 50% more damage from fire attacks. Is that a pro or a con, Jibs? Yeah. Um, if you're a Dunmer, it doesn't hurt so bad. Right, exactly. And that's why my character is a Dunmer, because their some of their passives will negate a lot of these um a lot of the debuffs that you would get from being a vampire. Yep. Stage two after uh thirty minutes, your health regenerates twenty five percent slower. You take fifty percent more damage from fire attacks. But your vampire abilities cost 20% less health to cast. So if you're like a full vampire build, then Stage 2 would uh, would benefit you. But there are definitely some debuffs that you get from it. Stage 3. After 60 minutes of not feeding, your health regenerates 50% slower. That seems like a problem. You take 50% more fire damage... And your vampire, vampirism abilities cost 40% less health to cast. Stage 4. The highest stage that you can go. Your health regenerates 75% slower. You take 50% more damage from fire attacks. So we're up to 200%. And your vampirism abilities cost 60% less health to cast. That is pretty significant at stage 4. That's my home right there, stage 4. Yeah, me too, because I'm lazy. Yeah. Okay. How do you feed as a vampire? Every time you feed, you will drop down your stage by one. I mean, unless you're level one, then you can't drop down anymore. But how to feed, you basically sneak up behind any humanoid in the game and use the feed skill prompt when it pops up. This starts a graphic that shows you basically slurping blood from the unsuspecting victim. I don't like the graphic. I think yeah. the graphic should be you biting the NPC's neck. I would like that more. Yeah, because it looks yeah. like you're just they're <laughs> like you're just draining them like they are literally a slushy. It looks like you're like, bathing in their blood, and the bath of blood is going straight into your mouth. Yeah, it's That's like you're using the force to suck the blood from them from a distance. Like exactly, and the person's like up in the air, and they're going ah, you know, their hands are flailing in the air, and then you're literally there, like like with both of your hands you're like moving the blood into your mouth as the stream flows into your mouth it's actually pretty funny looking yeah um okay so update. let's let's talk about some pros of becoming a vampire uh this can be very beneficial to your character depending on how you want to play it but the skill the skills and passives are as follows drain essence this drains the target's health dealing magic uh damage and restoring 20% of your missing health every 3 seconds which is pretty good. And then that morphs into Invigorating Drain and Midnight Drain. Mist Form, a second skill you can get. Uh, you'll take 75% less damage. You have immunity to healing magic and control abilities during this time. 
So you cannot be healed and your magic of recovery is disabled, but you're still taking 75% less damage. So this is like an oh crap button. You right. know, if you're getting in trouble, I you can hit this and get out, you know, because you, yep. you kind of stealth out a little bit in mist form. And then that morphs into elusive mist and veilful mist. Your ultimate bat swarm, which I just picked up, um, surrounds the caster with a swarm of bats, deals magic damage to nearby enemies for the duration of the effect, and then that morphs into clouding swarm and devouring swarm. Here is your passives, and this is what I think a lot of people really concentrate on when they become a vampire. It's for these passives. So the first one, Savage Feeding, eh, it's kind of whatever. uh, Feeding stuns the victim for a few seconds, and then um, you can increase that a couple times. So that kind of helps you feed and then get away. Then there's Supernatural Recovery. This one increases Magicka and Stamina Recovery by 5% at Stage 2 and goes up. That one can be significant. Blood Ritual. This allows the player to, uh, to turn other players into vampires every seven days. That's just You just click on it once and that gives you that particular uh, passive. Undeath. Increases damage mitigation up to 33% when under 30% health at stage 3. So if you want to keep it at stage 3 or 4, that is going to allow you to mitigate a third of the damage that you're taking when you're about to die. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That could be survival and not survival. Mm-hmm. Next one, unnatural resistance. Health recovery increased in stages two through four. That one can be significant. Dark Stalker. That's the last one. This one is 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 a pretty big draw for a lot of people, especially people who play stealthy characters. At stage four, you ignore the movement penalty when crouched or sneaking, and entering sneak is 50% faster at night. That is a lot of fun. Yes, that one's a lot of fun. And in particularly for this one, like when I was talking a little bit before about March of Sacrifices, right? Where yeah. you have to go into those glades and find the Indric and kill the Indric. You do that three times, and you get the uh, memento. Well, for that particular fight for those particular situations you have to be crouched and avoiding aoe and moving you know damage that's moving around and if you're crouched and moving slowly you have a higher chance of getting hit but if you're crouched and you're a vampire at stage four you're going to move pretty damn quickly so you can avoid those things easier so dark stalker is a definitely a good thing to have it's great to use, particularly for PvP as well. Um, any kind of object, objective. If you're a, 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 um, a Nightblade and you're playing objective-based uh, PvP matches, that's where you're right at home there. That's it. You will be one of the best uh, objective players. If you right. I think there's that. a. I think there's you know not just those two. I think there's a lot of situations where all these stages uh, of passives will probably help you out a lot. Right. So, but the problem is staying in the correct stage for what you're trying to accomplish. That can be, that can be a pain. Most particularly if you're like in a long trial or a dungeon and you haven't had the opportunity to feed, um, you can still feed in those areas, but you might endanger your group by doing so. So I don't know. Your call. So here are the cons. 
of becoming a vampire. And you can kind of see some of them. But fire vulnerability. Keep in mind your character is going to take 50% extra fire damage as a vampire. Um, although it's easy to avoid as most fire damage is normally area effect. But difficulty in doing so exponentiates in the end game content. So like some trials like um, AA, Ethereum Ar- uh, Archives, or Hellra can be really daunting because there's a ton of fire damage. But not oh impossible. Gosh, yeah. City of Ash uh, 2, anybody? Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, for sure. So uh, in, most, in most of these situations, especially dungeon content, uh, you can just kind of reposition to avoid the fire. And it's not too, too bad. Your customer appearance. Or ca- customer appearance. Customer <laughs> customer service. <laughs> or your character appearance. So this one could be a plus or minus to a lot of people. Because in the very stages of vampiric disease your skin will turn a pale white your eyes will turn red this is the case for all races including argonians i had my really nice cool like black and white striped dude and he became a vampire and now he's white um so as you progress through the stages the the effect will become more pronounced for some it's a huge draw to others it's a deal breaker especially like if you want your qt2 looking character you want it to look a, a certain way then right out you go um, PvP and Silver Bolts. Okay. As a vampire in PvP, you have a chance of taking increased damage from a Fighter's Guild skill called Silver Bolts. If you're a PvP, uh, PvPer, you know exactly what this is. This ability can hurt if you're an undead, which as a vampire you are. It deals physical damage and knocks down the undead and Daedric enemies for three and a half seconds and has a 5% chance to banish the same types of targets. The morph, Silver Shards and Silver Leash, hit two additional targets or pull the target toward the user, respectively. So, Silver Shards hits two additional, Silver Leash pulls the character to you. That can be kind of a pain in the butt when you're in PvP. Yeah. So, be, be aware of that. Um, how to cure vampirism in ESO. If you're just flat out over it, you can cure your vampirism by visiting a Priest of RK and by paying a small fee... If you decide to cure it, though, the game will save the experience that you gained in the skill line in case you decide to go back and get it again. You will start uh, start where you left off with skills. Yep. So that's, in a nutshell, vampirism in ESO. Yeah, you know... Uh... Okay, my friends. We are continuing our Halloween series on spooky themes... And we will not disappoint this week. This week we're going to do a really quick little hit on the Witches Festival and the lore behind it. We've already kind of touched on it before, but we're going to do it again with a few more little facts. There's not a whole lot on it because it's very game specific. So pretty much the lore about the Witches Festival comes directly from ESO. And uh, we're going to cover it. We're also going to talk about one of the most haunted locales in the Elder Scrolls Online. A little place that you might know well by the name of Glenumbra. I love that zone. It turns out that Glenumbra is incredibly freaking haunted. (laughs) And I'm going to talk about why and the where. uh, Some places where you can go if you have not already been through some of the quest lines. If there ever was a time for you to do the quest lines in Gwen- in Glenumbra, in Gwenumbra, Gwenumbra, it's white now doing Halloween. Gwenumbra, okay, it's a Gwenumbra. It's a it's a scary place. So watch the scary skeletons. 
But first, we talk about the Lore of the Witches Festival, a holiday in the Elder Scrolls that occurs annually on the 13th of Frostfall. It's October. It is a traditional celebration that occurs throughout Tamriel. It is also known as the Clash of Sorcery and Religion, where conjurers, witches, thaumaturges, I hope I said that right, Demonologists and warlocks meet in secret in various places throughout Tamriel's wilderness to perform all manners of incantations and conjurations. The creatures spawned by this event have been known to haunt Tamriel for many years. Each year they accumulate. So because of this tradition, most mortals choose not to wander out on the night of the witches' festival. What a bunch of wussies. (laughs) Get out there and experience it. Um, Also a little known fact, cultists of Mephala are also known to attempt to summon the cunning Daedric Prince on this very night, the 13th of Frostfall. The Mages' Guild, they capitalize on this particular holiday by evaluating weapons for their mystical potential free of charge. Free of charge. So basically they do like an identification scroll type of thing. If you've played any other game, we don't have have identification scrolls in this game. But there are tons of other games that do. So you kind of know. If you have, you find an item in the world and it's, don't know what its magical properties are, you can buy an identification scroll and boom. But in Elder Scrolls Online, you already have that knowledge. Also, the Mages Guild traditionally sells their magical spells for half their usual price. There you go. Yeah. That, my friends, is all I could find on the lore of the Witches Festival. But at least now you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. The more you know. Um, Yeah. The more you know. Let's get to the meat of this thing. The Ghosts of Glenumbra. This was a cool topic to research. So as I said, one of the most haunted zones in the Elder Scrolls Online is the zone of Glenumbra. There are ghosts who once walked, ghosts of those who once walked Tamriel but are now departed. And they refuse to leave. And Glenumbra plays host to some of the spookiest content in ESO, if you are looking. The Moors of Glenumbra to the northwest of Aldcroft is one of those very haunted places. The Moors is actually the site of the Battle of Glenumbria, which took place in the First Era, where both the Alessian Order and the Dureni Elves were nearly simultaneously wiped out in a bloody conflict. Many folks traveling through the area have re- have reported hearing the distant sounds of battle and even have reported sightings of spectral energies throughout the area. This is true if you walk through Glenumbra. It's freaking spooky. <laughs> so here's a little fun fact about the Elder Scrolls and what it considers to be ghosts or spirits. Typically, a spirit is a ghost-like character But unlike ghosts per se, they appear as if they really would have in real life. Uh, And sometimes Elder Scrolls kind of of jumbles us up a little bit, the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. To me, it doesn't freaking matter. 
if it is not of this world, I really don't care if it's called a ghost or a spirit. But, um, yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> and maybe sometime I'll tell the story of my dealings with ghosts in the real world. Oh, boy. There are some stories behind that. Um, and my lovely wife. Um, yeah, so maybe that's a story for How am I not show, surprised? But... How am I not surprised <laughs> in the freaking slightest? <laughs> no, I used to be a skeptic, but um, yeah, I'm no longer a skeptic. Because uh, turns out Mrs. Cash is one of those freaky people. Anyway, <laughs> more on that at another time. <laughs> to be continued. To be continued. So another haunted area of Glenumbra is directly related to the battle site at Glenumbra Moors. The one we just talked about. Kath Bedrod began as a mass grave for the fallen soldiers of the Battle of Glenumbria Moors. This was a place where the dead from the battle at Glenumbra Moors were buried, basically. It was a mass grave. It is said to be the most prevalent location for sightings of ghosts in the area and typically takes place during times of heavy fog where the moans and cries of the fallen can be heard. Immediately go there in game if you're looking for spooky and put on some spooky music from YouTube or from if you're a lore seeker member in our bard channel because it really lends to your experience <laughs> when you hear the cries of all and the moans and all the stuff going on with that music. You want to talk about adding that third layer to your game? Yeah, it works. It does work. It is advisable to avoid this area after dark, according to Glenumbra locals. Ooh. Another incredibly spooky location in Glenumbra is the village at Westry. This is actually a really neat quest line as well. The town is said to be haunted by the ghost of its former inhabitants and the raiders who killed them. The Stout of Heart may be able to stomach two quests in Westry. The Ghosts of Westry is one of them. It asks the adventurer to retrace a dead woman's footsteps to discover the secret of the cursed town. Memento Mori is a second quest where the adventurer is tasked with breaking Molag Ball's curse to free the spirit of Rosalind, a former inhabitant of the town. It's really a pretty fun quest line. You're actually helping out her husband, who's still among the living, but Rosalind is not. So it's a really uh, kind of a cool one. There is a good amount of local legends surrounding Glenumbra's past of territorial feuds and division, as evidenced by the numerous ruins and castles dotting the countryside of Glenumbra. Two such haunted locations also include Bailborn Rock and Drezan Keep, both with some very interesting history, which can be delivered in quests. Uh, in the quest, The Legacy of Bailborn Rock, the heir to the family... Athel Bailborn discovers that he has inherited the estate, but he cannot enter the residence due to a haunting. Mm. 
So the player is tasked with investigating the ruins and trying to rid the residents of its ghostly inhabitants. See what I mean? There's tons of ghostly stuff yeah. in Glen Umbra, and it's really kind of this is the perfect time of year to do these quests. Yeah. Um, an additional one called Drez, uh, at Dresden Keep, a tower. It's a tower ruin to the west of Aldcroft. It's the site of a trapped ancient alien spirit, which the adventurer must free, which leads to additional objectives, which will continue to kind of uncover the history of the ruin. Go check those quests out. They're fun. Glenumbra is more of a starter zone, but it doesn't really matter what level you are anymore. Everything's, you know, battle leveled for you. Um so going through those areas and the delves are just, they all have a very creepy feel to them that I think everybody will enjoy. So go dive into those. Do it tonight. Yeah. That is your prescribed homework. Yeah. Those from Dr. Cash. Those, that, those areas, man, particularly the, the mass grave area where the necromancers are. And you just sit there and listen. And it's one of those things where, again, like I've talked about in previous episodes, you turn your music volume off all the way down. Crank your ambient volume. Turn up your master volume and just sit there and listen. And definitely yeah. sets the mood. <laughs> it does. In a dark room, if you're by yourself, without anybody guildies, without any other guildies talking or anything, if you're just focused on the game... You may or may not pee a little. Just saying. <laughs> may go full Bosma for a second, I'm just saying. You may go full Bosma. So here's something that we have not done. This is a little, a little bit of a transition, and we'll, we'll kind of close out the lore lesson with this. But there is a title you can get that's very Halloween-y by the name of Monster Slayer. Now, this one is, a under, is an undertaking for sure. So while you're out adventuring in Glenumbra, you can certainly start this off. You kill, you're killing ghosts and spirits or whatever. You can earn an achievement and a title for doing so. So in order to earn the Monster Slayer or Monster Slayer title, you got to do the following: you have to complete several Monster Slayer achievements as listed below. There's the first one. It's called Slayer of Humanoids. You have to kill a thousand humanoids. Wow. Yes, I said that correctly. A thousand humanoids. 500 goblin kin and a hundred giant kin. Then you'll get the achievement Slayer of Humanoids. It continues. Slayer of Daedra. This is the second achievement. 500 bestial Daedra, 500 humanoid Daedra, 200 flame Atronox. 100 Storm Atronox, 100 Frost Atronox, 200 Flesh Atronox. I really would like to see where my character is at in this count. Yeah, I would be Granted, this is on one character. Yeah. This is on one character to get the title. Uh, Okay. Here's the next achievement. Slayer of Dwarven Constructs. You have to kill 1,000 Dwarven Constructs. I guarantee you I got that one in Nizzlazalazalachalalachaft mm-hmm. trying to get the uh, Theolodite Dwemer pet. I pretty much guarantee you I'm there on that one. Uh, the next achievement, Slayer of Nature. 500 beasts, 500 insect-like creatures, 
500 lizard-like creatures, 200 plant-like creatures, and 100 water-based creatures. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Ooh, there's more. 500 chitinous creatures, which would be like your mud crabs and such, and 50 netches. Ah, I can't kill netches. They're so sweet. They're normally yellow. Hmm. That means, if they're yellow, it means they're more scared of you than you are of them. Because yellow is like pee. Like they pee when they see you. Right? That's yeah. That's what I always think of. Yeah. It's just murder. I don't, so, know. I don't okay, know. Okay, next I, one. Yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> next achievement, Slayer of the Undead. 1,000 skeletons, 1,000 zombies, 1,000 ghosts and spirits... And 500 vampires. Man, I'd be leery about going out and this being your focus. Because I feel like the burnout after completing something like that would just be unreal. Do you want to talk about burnout? Um, I know where you're going. I've already talked about my my World of Warcraft Lore Master story. Yeah. The day you got Lore Masters when you quit. Yeah, true story. I've mentioned it before. The day that I got Lore Master, the Lore Master title on World of Warcraft, was the last day I played World of Warcraft. And I guarantee you that my druid is still in the zone where I finished the last freaking quest for that title. I remember that. I was done. Yep. Uh-huh. I Wasn't that some like legit 5,000 quests? It was like 3,500 quests. That is ridiculous. Yep. That is ridiculous. Yep. So I think this will be a little easier to attain than that godforsaken <laughs> six months of my life. <laughs> there is a so, uh let's see, we don't have we don't have a lore master title in ESO. We've got a librarian. I think we've got the Pathfinder achievement. But I don't think we have a There is not. There is not, is there? I think you can I think a, a one that is Close is like Explorer. And then I uh, there's another one that I think hmm. kind of resembles it, but yeah. there is no lore master title. Because if there was, I would be on it for sure. Like that would be my that would be my shtick. Mm-hmm. And then I'd probably quit the game after I got it. I was going to say, so what MMO are we playing after that? <laughs> <laughs> there is no MMO that's better than this one. I'm, True that. I am convinced of that. Yep. True that. So anyway, that um, so that if you kill all those things, all the things, then you will get the title of Monster Slayer, and you, this is all obviously trackable in your achievements. So you can go through and look at it. But that in itself concludes this week's lore lesson and volume and our volume. This is kind of sad. Kind I'm of, excited for the people to hear know, our story. I know. I'm excited, too. So, well done, my friend. I enjoyed that. Glenumbra. Yeah. It's legit. Like, I, I didn't yep. realize how spooky yep. it was until I was freaking in there. And I'm like, wow. This, I know. We should go do some of those together. We should. We will do I that. Know. Will you hold my hand? Yep. Will you hold my hand? Yep. Gross. <laughs> Whatever you're, you're like, into. you like, just... All right, friends. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Lore Lesson compilation. And if you did, one thing we want to know, we want to hear from you. For every five-star review that we get on iTunes, we give you a shout-out live on the show. 
And uh, as we prepare for Volume 3, which I can tell you right now is going to be very, very, very special, we've got a lot of cool things planned for you. You can go back and listen to all our old episodes. You can go back and listen to Volume 1's Lore Lesson compilation as well. All those things can be found at loreseekerspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at loreseekerscast. And uh, you can follow uh, myself, Jibs, at IRL on Twitter. And Cash at Cash with a K. Take care. Have a great week. And uh, announcements coming for Volume 3.